Shabbat Shalom. My name is Noel Joshua Haley. This is, this is the Unexpected Cosmology. You guys know the address. And of course, salutations, bonjour. Glad to see a lot of you return tonight. And uh, it's always my fear that I'm going to run people off. And I have to recognize that last week in Bezorah Kifa or the Gospel of Peter, you know, I was presenting some things that and I will be tonight too, that implies that uh, in order for this book to work uh, canonically, uh, that a scripture has you know, been changed on some uh, elements, particularly when it comes to, uh, is Pontius Pilate guilty? Did he crucify Messiah? Were the Romans responsible? Who was responsible? And for some people, they're just going to check out on that because they're like, nope, sorry, you know, I've got my preserved word right here. Don't touch it. And, uh, but throughout this study, I'm going to be showing you that Bezorah uh, uh, Kepha, the Gospel of Peter, of course, I love this book, that I I believe this lines up with the original vision, and I will be uh, showing old Gospels, like the Hebrew Gospels, that actually completely back up uh, the Gospel of Peter. So uh, we're going to get started. Let me just start out by showing you guys the TUC Book Club. Now, I, I've, we've been running the TUC Book Club for not quite a year yet, maybe nine months. I'm not really sure how long. And a lot of people still have questions about it. They don't really know what it is. So the TUC Book Club is one of the ways you can support this ministry. Um, and people who, who believe in what the Unexpected Cosmology is doing, the research that we are putting forward here, uh, they... I, I want to I want to give you guys something back. I'm not just be I'm not just saying you know give me give me give me give me give me here. And by the way, all the money uh, that comes in it doesn't go to me. It helps support uh, those who are running the ministry each month because you know I value books and uh, ancient texts and other things like that. We are putting out new a new book every single month. We are premiering a new book and uh, sending it off to you guys. So a couple months ago, we sent off, if you can see this, this of course, this is my, yours truly by Noel Joshua Hadley right there, The Hidden Wilderness. And this goes through all my uh, my research on the, the greater realm. Uh, you, if you look at the Flat Earth AE map, I'm saying that's like anywhere from a third to a half of, of what the greater realm truly is. And this goes through um, any kind of ancient text, scripture, anything like that, that highlights that. I would have to say my joy, my, my most joyous read ever was Mary Magdalene, wife of Messiah. Some people are, you know, they just roll their eyes and, you know, just huff and puff over this. But um, I ask everyone to give this a chance. This is not your Da Vinci Code stuff. This is not Holy Grail stuff. This is a lot of scripture that I put together to show why I believe that uh, not only is it likely that Messiah, uh, Yahushua HaMashiach, had a betrothed or a wife, but that she is actually talked about more than people recognize in scripture. Once you start uh, seeing it for yourself, uh, you can't unsee it. And then this is something right here, uh, the Earth, not a globe, one of our first sendouts. And Rebecca, who is my editor, and she is the one uh, going through all these ancient books uh, or old reads, she has finished volume two. So this is volume one. Volume two has been sent out, sent out a couple weeks ago. And I'm in the TUC book club, just like you guys. So uh, I haven't received my copy yet. You guys should probably re be receiving it this week. And for those of you who don't know, this is the 1890s newspaper coming out of London uh, from the Zetetics. The Zetetics were the 
uh, 19th century flat earthists. They weren't called flat earthers back then. They were. It was a. a it was considered a branch of astronomy called uh, zetetic astronomy. These guys were the 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 very individuals like Lady Blunt. Uh, the, the editor was John Williams, not the musician from Star Wars, uh, but. Uh, a lot of these people, a lot of these names you might recognize in here, and they were the ones that did the uh, the, the Bedford Canal experiments. Uh, they were the ones pushing the the science of the in the 1800s, early 1900s, showing that the Earth was indeed motionless and flat. So uh, I encourage everyone to uh, help support the ministry. Uh, sign up. The links will be under these videos, and uh, it'll take you straight there. And we'll send you a new book every single month. So let's get right to it. This is, hopefully, Josh, you pulled this up to page 55 or something there tonight. Last week, we only got through the first four verses of Bezora Kifa. And I'm telling you guys, when I, when I started this study, I really thought, it's almost like when, when people, you know, politicians, they, they send people to war, and they tell you through the newspapers, like, uh, like, oh, the, we'll have the troops home by Christmas, right? And then, you know, five years go by. I actually really thought I could just hammer this commentary out in one week, two tops. You know, it's like 60 verses, uh, what we have of Bizarre, the Gospel of Peter, and I could just hammer this out and give this to you guys. We're looking at like five, six weeks in now that I've been writing this, and I'm not even halfway done yet. Uh, I think I'm on verse, I'm nearing verse 20 now. So I've got a ways to go. Hopefully I will see the light at the end of the tunnel soon. And um, But it has been quite the journey, and I have learned a lot through this, and hopefully you guys will too. So let's get right to it. And Josh, you don't have to turn there, but I'm going to start uh, reading the gospel once again. I think I'm just going to get through the first 10 verses. And uh, so I have it written out on page 7, and here it goes. But of the Yahudim, none washed his hands, neither Herod nor one of his judges. And since they did not desire to wash, Pilate stood up. And then Herod the king commanded that Adonai be taken, saying to them, What things I commanded you to do to him, do. So right there, you see the swap. And you know, in review, you see the swap right there from Pilate to Herod. Herod is the one responsible for the, the crucifixion of Messiah. But Yosef, the friend of Pilate and of Adonai, had been standing there, and knowing they were about to crucify him, he came before Pilate and requested the body of Adonai for burial. And Pilate sent to Herod and asked for his body. And Herod said, Brother Pilate, even if no one has asked for him, we purpose to bury him, especially as the Sabbath draws near, for it is written in the Torah that the sun should not set upon one that has been put to death. That cuts off where we ended last week. So I'll read verses 5 through, we'll see if we get to 10 uh, tonight. And he delivered him to the people on the day before the feast of matzah. And they took Adonai and pushed him as they ran and said, let us drag away the son of Elohim, having obtained power over him. And they clothed him with purple and set him on the seat of judgment saying, judge righteously, O king of Yasharel. And one of them brought a crown of thorns and put it on the head of Adonai. And others stood and spat in his eyes, and others smote his cheeks. Others pricked him with a reed, and some scourged him, saying, With this honor, let us honor the son of Elohim. And they brought two criminals, and they crucified Adonai between them. But he held his peace, as though having no pain. And when they had raised the cross, they wrote the title, This is the king of Yasharel. 
And having set his garments before him, they parted them among them and cast lots for them. And one of those criminals reproached them, saying, We for the evils that we have done have suffered this. But this man, who has become the savior of men, what wrong has he done to you? And they, being angered at him, commanded that his legs should not be broken, that he might die in torment. I'll go ahead and read 11 and 12 here just to be sure. And it was noon, and darkness came over all Yehuda, or all Yehud. And they were troubled and distressed, lest the sun had set while he as yet alive. For it is written for them that the sun set not on him who has been put to death. And one of them said, Give him to drink gall with vinegar. And they mixed and gave him something to drink, and fulfilled all things, and accomplished their sins against their own head. And many went about with lamps, supposing that it was night and fell down. Oh, yeah, uh, Josh, are you saying that you hear some voices in the background? Faintly. All right. Well, hopefully my wife is listening and she can hear that and uh, cue them into my sons to quiet down or else <laughs> they know there will be consequences. All right. Bizarre Kifa 5. Oh, yeah. Let me just, uh, I forgot to mention when we got started, for those of you live in the chat, and this is one of the benefits you have to listening live rather than on a YouTube land or podcast or whatever. If you guys have any questions that regarding this text, or it could be really anything else, be sure to write them on the 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 chat room here on the TUC stage and Sarah will read them off at the end and of course any uh, maybe interesting comments that you have so something to consider so once again we see Bezora Kifa verse 5 and it says and he delivered him to the people on that day before the feast of Matzah and they took Adonai and pushed him as they ran and said let us drag away the son of Elohim having obtained power over him. And they clothed him with purple and set him on the seat of judgment, saying, Judge righteously, O king of Yasharel. I don't know about you guys, but that reminds me of a, like a scene that could have been in The Passion of the Christ. Because it just, it's purely this, this, this picture that's given to us. It seems so demonic. We're like, they're actually, the mob is, you know, pushing and beating him as they um, go along prophesying. The sheer level of arrogance in this passage is truly breathtaking. I mean, the utter and absolute contempt, as well as the unadulterated hatred for the son of Elohim, couldn't be any more evident than what is offered for us in Bezorah Kepha, verse 5. It is not the Romans this time around who are left unchecked in their crucifixion duties, but the people. Follow the breadcrumb trail, and you will surely come to find that it was the Yahudim who barked the order. And then again, the Yahudim who pulled the trigger and had Mashiach strung up. I have repeatedly made the claim that Pilate was innocent in all of this, though I suppose that's not entirely true. After all, he did deliver Yahushua over to Herod and his crew. It says so here, when in fact he could have thrown Mashiach into Fort Antonia for the remainder of the matzah week, giving the riotous mob an ample cool-down period, and he didn't. And in this way, he was guilty. So what I'm saying is that, you know, uh, Pilate, you know, he's not completely innocent here. He, he is, but he isn't. Um, you know, uh, if he were governing the situation to spare Mashiach's life, uh, that, I mean, that's probably what I would have done. I would have just taken him to Fort Antonia, threw him in a cell, said, okay, he's in prison, he's being punished, and let things cool down over a few days and then let him out at the end. How do, How demonic is the mob, though. They're literally playing the mouthpiece for Hasatan. 
And they're saying, let us drag away the son of Elohim, having obtained power over him. Who talks like that? It is quite unsettling, though brutally honest all the same. and reminds me of another scene in the canonical Gospels. I am reminded of various extra canonical books as well, all of which ascribe the same visceral reaction. Bezora Nicodemus, uh, they're uh, pronounced Nicodemon, most certainly comes to mind. There are others which we will turn to over the course of this conversation. But first, the mob mentality. You can probably already con uh, conjure the scene I am thinking of, and here it is. So this comes from the Gospel of Lucas. And all they in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath. This is the, the famous passage where uh, Yahushua goes to the synagogue to read from Isaiah or Yeshiahu, and he doesn't finish the passage. He scrolls, uh, he rolls up the scroll, and then they're like, everyone is, you know, pissed off. And they rose up and thrust them out of the city and led them unto the brow of the hill whereupon their city was built. This is in Nazareth, I believe, that they might cast them down headlong. But he, passing through the midst of them, went his way. So that's Lucas 4, 28 through 30. The defining difference between the, the Nazareth mob and the Jerusalem mob is that Yahushua hadn't delivered himself over to the will of the ignorance on the first go-around. But then don't let the similarities evade you. Herod Antipas was the tetrarch of Galilee, where Nazareth just so happened to be located. Everything here is interconnected. The Ruach driving the Galil or Galilee mob from the hilltop in Nazareth was capable of completing its mission, but only when Mashiach was good and ready to deliver himself to the people, even if it is Pilate who committed the deed. Let's just be clear what I am saying in all of this. The Romans did not drive the nails into Yahushua's hands. You will ask for chapter and verse, and not from Kepha's Bezorah. Very well, then. You demand something in the Bible, anything from canon, which backs Kepha's claim, and I don't blame you. I would be sitting on this, too, if I didn't have these to back me up. Well, then hold your horses, because the same scene plays out in the canonical Gospels, and I'm about to offer them. Follow along. So you can see here that there is, um, on the left, you have Bezorah Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew. This comes from the Greek. And then we have the Hebrew Gospel of Matthew on the right. So I, I'm not going to read from the uh, Greek. You guys all know that. So let's just read from Matthew 27, 27 through 30 in the Hebrew. And it says, Now the servants of Pilate had taken Yeshua to the great house of the judges, and the people gathered around, and they stripped him, the people, and covered him with a garment of fine red linen, and set a crown of thorns upon his head, and a reed in his right hand, and bowed the knee before him, saying, May Yahuwah save you, king of the Yahudim. And they spat on him, and took the reed, and smote on his head. I have just given you the same chapter and verse, but from two separate sources, one Greek, the other Hebrew. Quite the difference between the two, wouldn't you agree? I mean, I guess I should have read the Greek, but you guys all know the story. I even took out the highlighter and red marker, hoping you wouldn't miss it. We are told in the Greek that Yahushua was taken to the common hall, a reference to the courtyard of the governor's headquarters, also known as the, uh, I, I guess you would say, praetorium. Whereas the great house in Hebrew is an undeniable reference to 
the temple. It's the little details. That fact is both obvious and evident when Hebrew Matath Yahu identifies the house as belonging to the judges, an undeniable reference to the Sanhedrin. And just to be certain that I'm not diagnosing the wrong location, pay careful attention to the sleight of hand. The Greek insists a band of pilot soldiers stripped him of his clothes, dressed him in a scarlet robe, planted a crown of thorns on his head, and then mocked him as the king of Yahudim. Whereas the people, quote-unquote, in the Hebrew identifies these same actions as having originated with an angry mob. If we are to go with the Hebrew Bezora of Matthew, then Pilate's servants saw that Yahushua was given safe conduct to the Sanhedrin, hoping the mob wouldn't get to him first. It is so he actually would, so Pilate would have his soldiers escort him from the seat of judgment all the way back to the temple. It is there, presumably in the temple, that Yahushua was removed from Roman supervision, stripped of his clothes, and delivered a crown of thorns. But even before that, you don't have to read between the lines to conclude that Yahushua was tried by the court all over again. You see, Bezora Kifa and Matthew do agree. Wrong chapter and verse. Before you tell me the Hebrew Gospel of Matthew was copied by people who rejected Yahushua as Mashiach and is therefore not to be accepted as court, courtroom evidence, I probably should have warned in advance that I am not quoting from the Shemta version. No, I'm quoting from the Hebrew Gospels of Shepherds. Uh, <laughs> I always call it Shepherd, but probably is what it means. Uh, Shepherd Spain. That's right. You heard me. I said Gospels plural. We have all four of them, Matthew, Marcus, Lucas, and Yochanan, in Hebrew. And I checked. They all read the same way. The Jews did the killing. I will be sure to parallel them as Kifa's Bezora continues. Now, for some of you, this is, um, is review, but you know it obviously has to be uh, restated again in this study. All right, now this is a little section here which will come in handy for everybody as we continue forward. Uh, it's called Kifa and Docetism, or Docetism. And this is one of the accusations that this book is a Docetic text, and I'll explain a little bit about what it is. And this will uh, help give you vision as we move forward. Yahushua was taken back to the temple for a second trial. Details are mum this time around. The only particular is given happened to be a footnote, uh, what we read in, in Matthew Yahu. The reason potentially being that Yosef of Ramah and Nicodemus, as well as other supporters, were absent, and so no witness is given. This is why we don't have it written down. Also, calling it a kangaroo court is probably far too complimentary. Only a mob seems likely, and it was high time for a hanging. You will also recall that Kifa was the exclusive... Talmudim recorded to have been present in the temple courtyard for the original trial. That would be, well, and I say Talmudim, he had many Talmudim, I'm referring to the 12, because obviously Yosef of Rama was there, Nicodemus was there, probably some others, but he was the only of the 12 that was present. And that would be the Kakodotl uh, do episode that you all know so well. Well, there is yet another passion account attributed to Kifa, which might shed some additional light upon a uh, upon or figure parallel details, even to the mob confrontation in the temple. It derives from the Gnostic apocalypse of Kifa, 
dun dun dun, as found in the Nag Hammadi library. This is not to be confused with the proto-Orthodox apocalypse of Kifa, in which the title character is given a tour of the cosmos. I won't be quoting from that one in this study, I don't think. The Gnostic one promotes a doctrine known as docetism. Appropriate since some of the earliest references to Bezora Kifa also identify it as containing uh, docetic thoughts. I probably should have mentioned that in the introduction. Oh well, better late than never. Somebody named Serapion uh, <laughs> of Antioch, I can say Antioch, he was from Antioch, and an ancient dude from the year 200 was so disturbed to hear a church openly reading from Bezora Kifa in the whereabouts of 200 that he wrote a letter titled Concerning What Is Known as the Gospel of Peter. In it, he advised church leaders not to read the book on the basis that he was picking up on docetic vibes. Trigger warning. Docetism was unequivocally rejected at the First Council of Nicaea in 325 and is currently regarded as heretical by the Catholic Church, Eastern Orthodox Church, the Coptic Orthodoxy, Armenians, and any and all Protestant denominations, including the Baptists, that accept and hold to the statements of these early church councils, especially all Trinitarian Christians. So uh, if any of these branches describe your affiliation, then uh-oh. I'll have you know I spent all day attempting to get to the bottom of docetism without receiving a single straight answer. All right, so this word is thrown around a lot. Uh, say, oh, don't don't touch that. That's that's the the big D, uh, but they can't even agree on what it is. All right, probably because there were many different variations of thought all lumped together into one weaponized doctrine, which the RCC crowd employed for nuke purposes. I should have put a capital N on that on nuke uh, against their competitors. And that's how I feel about uh, Gnosticism, too. It's such a weaponized word. It's like, what did the Gnostics really believe? They believe probably dozens, if not hundreds of things. And you can't just, you know, find one thing you disagree with and say, see, they're all heretical. It doesn't, it doesn't work like that. One explanation of Docetism depicts a Christ so divine that he could not have possibly been human, which is interesting. Somebody just wrote me about this today. He only appeared to be made of flesh and and uh, blood at the nativity. Let me read that again. He only appeared to be made of flesh and blood at the nativity, his body being an illusion of ignorance. This would fall in line with the Greek word dokesis, which means appearance or semblance. The proponents of this view aren't simply annotating the fleshly ministry of Yahusha, though. His dokesis would be an ongoing one. So consider this here from the book Acts of Kepha and Andre. And Yahusha appeared in the form of a little child and greeted them and told them to go to the city of the barbarians and promised to be with them and left them. Why would Yahusha appear to Kepha and Andre as a little child rather than a resurrected man? So again, this is after, this is like in the, the age of the apostles here. This is after the ascension to heaven. After all, the story takes place after the Great Commission, as I just mentioned. I'm not sure I can outright answer that question, nor is my ability to adequately tackle the issue proof of its deficient, uh, deficiency as theories go. 
If I had to guess, the writers of Acts of uh, Kepha and Andre is attempting to convey the notion that Yahusha, both in his pre-incarnate and resurrected state, is so much larger than any one man that he cannot therefore be expressed by the sequence of mortal life stages, fetus, baby, child, grown man, or elder, finally corpse. The idea is that Yahusha could have appeared as a mature adult, but not even that would adequately contain him. The reason I come to that conclusion is because of how the Dokesis doctrine plays out in other books, like the one I am about to quote from. But first, here is some context for you. It is the story of the star which appeared in the East to announce the birth of Mashiach and the Magi who followed it. Uh, so this book is uh, Revelation of the Magi. This is another book I've discovered really lately, and I'll probably probably be quoting from a lot more often. And each of us was speaking about the revelations and visions that had appeared to him in the cave of treasures of hidden mysteries. These are the, the Magi uh, speaking. But our visions did not resemble each other, and all the wonders of many forms that appeared to us. There is one of us saying, I saw a light in which there were many images that were amazing. And there is one saying, I saw an infant who had unspeakable forms. And there is one saying, I saw a youth who did not have a form in this world. And there is one saying, I saw a human being who was humble, unsightly in appearance, and poor. And there is one saying, I saw a cross and a person of light who hung upon it taking away the sins of the entire world. And there is one saying, I saw that he went down to Sheol with force and all the dead rose and worshipped him. And there is one saying, I saw that he ascended in glory and he opened the graves and he raised up the dead while they are crying out and saying, holy is our king and holy is his descent to us. Because of our sins, he humbled himself to save us. And there is one saying, yet another saying. There was a lot of wise men in this book, by the way. There weren't just three of them. There was like over a dozen of them, I, I believe. I saw him ascending to the heavenly height and, and angels opening the gates of heaven before him. And clouds as seraphs and angels are taking him upon the palms of their hands. And the, uh, I guess that's per, Pericleti, uh, Pericletes Ruach taking a diadem and a crown and making victory shine before him and all the hosts praising and singing the honor of his humility, which prevailed in the whole struggle of error and death. Revelation of the, of the Magi 14, three through eight. After exiting the cave of treasures with their gifts of gold, frankincense and myrrh, the, the Magi each speak of their visions in turn. Yahusha appeared to one as an infant, and another is a mature child or a mature adult, excuse me. Whereas another saw him hung upon the cross as like a like a pillar of light, which is really interesting, which totally uh, plays into to the docetic doctrine. And then and then notice something: the magi who saw him leave the cross and enter Sheol did not di differentiate between a fleshly body or nefesh. Clearly, Yahushua was still hung upon the cross when he saw his nefesh. But to a docetist of this caliber, who is to say the real Yahusha was buried in a tomb? The nefesh of Yahusha was the real Mashiach. By nefesh, I mean his soul. The mystery of Dokesis only continues after they arrive at the nativity scene. And I'm going to just pause here. You know, you hear this all the time from Christians that um, 
they'll uh, a loved one will die and they'll be looking at the body there at the funeral and saying uh this is this is not the real this is not my real spouse this is not my real brother or mother or father that they have gone on to pair of uh, to heaven to be with the lord they'll say and so that right there it, that's that's rooted in this very doctrine, whether they want to admit it or not. They could say this is heretical, but it's what it's essentially saying. It's putting more of an emphasis on your soul, your nefesh, and your ruach than your fleshly body. It's saying that is the real you underneath that the clothing that you're wearing. Uh, so if that were to be separated from your body, then you know that's where the focus of reality is. Anyways, continuing. So this is back again with the revelation of the uh, the Magi. Therefore, rise and go in shalom. Again, I am with you in all visions and signs, just as I am with you from the first day. And I believe this is Mashiach talking here. For just as I am in sight and in all forms here, and behold, you are amazed by all the visions and forms in which you see me. I am also with the Father of majesty, whose will I am uh, since the world began, and I am never separated from you, nor from the presence of the Father, because I am a ray of his light, and I was sent to you to enlighten you. And behold, you are amazed as frail human beings. How much more when I have come to you in the majesty of my Father? As for you not being able to stand before me, neither could the angels and powers that are above you when I descended upon them. And they saw a vision of wonders and stood in fear and trembling. Even as it was fitting for them, I appeared to them. And for you, I appeared as you were able to see. And that's key right there, the last sentence. I appeared as you were able to see me. That comes from Revelation of the Magi 21, 6-7. The individual doing the speaking in this passage is none other than Yahusha. He is but a babe in a manger. Now, keep in mind, this is like a vision they're seeing. I'm not, uh, I, I read this text over and over again, and I'm under no impression that anybody else, uh, Mary, uh, Mary, the mother of Yahusha, Yosef, anybody else is hearing these words. This is something that's just coming to the, the Magi. But, uh, okay, repeating, he is but a babe in a manger, but don't let that fool you. Even his infancy could not contain him. He was just as much a man in that instance as a newborn. He was also the light of the star, by the way, and only the Magi were capable of seeing it. I would show you, but I really don't intend this to become a commentary on Revelation of the Magi when it is docetism or after. And so if you're following, that means Yahushua was simultaneously shining forth from the firmament, having only recently descended from his throne in the highest heaven while simultaneously inhabiting his fleshly mother's womb. You see, a fleshly body cannot contain him. Now, if you, if you fail to, to, to get a mental image of that, what they're saying in this book is that that star that appeared, that the, the Magi knew this is the star of Messiah, it's saying that star was Messiah, right? Because all the stars are divine beings. This star was Messiah himself shining in the firmament. And... It's kind of interesting because when you look at all the nativity movies and stories, it's it, even like the, the, the paintings, it always shows the Magi following the star, and the star is shining, but nobody else is looking up at it. No one's like, oh, look at that really bright star up there. Like No one is commenting on that. And according to this book, it's saying because they're the only ones who could see it. Nobody else could see the star. And that's a really unique um, uh, perspective on this. 
by the way, in the game of duality, Dokesis applies uh, to Samael as well. Hasatan appearing as something which he is not seems to be a given, though I should presume you'll agree. The same can be said of the son of perdition, by the way. Uh, in the case of the Antichrist, I've come prepared with a passage of extra-canonical scripture, which I think you'll appreciate. So this comes from the Apocalypse of Eliyahu, or Elijah. Uh, this is the Hebrew version, by the way, too. For behold, I will tell you his signs so that you might know him. He is a, a dot, 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 of a skinny-legged young lad having a tuft of gray hair at the front of his bald head. His eyebrows will reach to his ears. There is a leprous bare spot on the front of his hands, telling us that he's unclean. He will transform himself in the presence of those who see him. He will become a young child. He will become old. He will transform himself in every sign, but the signs of his head will not be able to change. There you will know that he is the son of lawlessness. It seems as though the quote-unquote docetists saw Hasatan's trickery as a matter of concern. If it is true that Yahusha is greater than the fleshly body as expressed by a man or child and can therefore transform himself into any one of those uh, soul expressions on a whim, the same can be attributed to the son of perdition, sort of. Whatever bodily illusion the Antichrist expresses himself as, he cannot manifest anything but a bald head and perhaps far more importantly the leprous bare spot on his hands according to this this book telling us that he's unclean due to his transgressions there is more to docetism than what has just been shown other groups purportedly claimed christ was an altogether separate entity who entered yahusha's fleshly body in the form of a dove at his baptism and that I, i've noticed uh, out there that that seems to be a view that's gaining momentum again. I'm not saying that that is the wrong view. Uh, it's something I've looked into, but it's not something that I uh, uh, personally hold to. It's just, it's one of the, the it, it was also a very early Christian view. A lot of people believe that Yahushua was a normal dude. Uh, he just lived a very righteous life. And then he was born on that day that he became uh, the son of Elohim on the day of his baptism. That there was nothing pre-incarnated about him, nothing like that. This Christ Ruach then departed from Yahusha while he hung on the tree. The idea is that the true Christ could not feel pain in the mortal realm, and thus he allowed a stand-in body to receive the sacrifice. Again, that's not my view. To be clear, this particular view involving the Rashiach Ruach in a normal human being, not born of a virgin, mind you, because the, the view that he's just a normal guy, he was just, you know, born through intercourse, applies to other groups beyond traditional Gnostic thinking. It appears to have been a somewhat popular view in the early church. So again, I will remind you, when we're all we're all saying, oh, this is heretical, this and that, it's like, you know, there, there was a lot of views out there in the first century, the second century, uh, that were competing against each other and trying to, people trying to wrap their heads around who the Mashiach was. And, um, you know, I, I, we have this, this notion that uh, we almost romanticize this. If we could just go back to the first century, we would have it all figured out. And I, I don't know if that's the case. I think we'd all be arguing about it even back then. If what I have otherwise described is an accurate view of docetism, then it certainly seems to be what Yochanan was getting at when he warned of a certain Antichrist teaching, which he says in 1 John 
4.3. And every Ruach that confesses not that Yahusha HaMashiach has come in the flesh uh, is not of Elohim. And this is the Ruach of Anti-Mashiach, anti or Antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now already is it in the world. Supposing the weaponized phrasing of docetism were truly a thing, and I'm not doubting its existence in one century or another, then you could say Yochanan was directly addressing the issue, because saying Yahusha did not die and resurrect seems at its core completely dislodged from the whole of Hebrew scripture. He most certainly did die and resurrect from the dead. And I'm happy to give that defense. I just want everyone to know that, you know, that I, I'm not holding some other view. And so understand what I'm not telling you. I am not a dose, uh, I am not a docetic according to the dictionary definition. Did I pronounce that right? Docetist it is, or is it? Whatever. I'm simply not convinced that docetism was a thing during the intervening years of Yahushua's ascension and the temple's destruction when Yochanan would have written his letter. He was first and foremost addressing those who insisted Yahushua did not come from Elohim, and then also those who claimed that Mashiach had not arrived in the flesh. There were plenty of those in his day. It is they uh, who would have been. Uh, it is they who would have been the ruach of anti-Mashiach, not those who ruminated over the method by which the pre-incarnate Son of Elohim became incarnate in the centuries before the Trinitarians won the debate. All right. So, I mean, I think what what Yochanan is is literally saying there is saying there's a lot of people who are saying that. Um, Yahusha did not come from Elohim, or that Mashiach has not come in the flesh. All right, he's just addressing a very common view uh, in in the developing religion of Judaism back then. Personally, I suspect the RCC crowd was weaponizing all sorts of theological words and then hurling them at their competitors for propaganda purposes. When what the Gnostics were ultimately getting at is the pure, pre-existent, heaven-born self. They identified with Ruach. They're talking about pre-existence, the fact that we all, you know, there, there was a, a true us before we entered the physical body, and there will continue to be a true us, the self, uh, after we leave this physical body. Look, I understand some Gnostics understood the flesh to be evil. Maybe even many of them, according to our controllers, I don't really know. Certainly not all, though. You might as well tell me the Baptists turned the wine back into water, and that it, it somehow proves all Christians believe there's an 11th commandment demanding prohibition, LOL. The heaping of propaganda thrust upon the Gnostics by our controllers should incite further in inquiry. It should cause us all to turn our heads. Like, what? Why was there such a concentrated effort to eliminate them? Not all Gnostics were Christians, you know. You can't shove them all into a box. I'm willing to bet the Gnostics were as varied in their beliefs as many a denomination today. Uh, there were uh, Gnostic Jews, uh, Yahudim, there were Gnostic Christians, there were Gnostics of other faiths. They weren't just all like this, they didn't all adhere to Messiah. And really, the relationship between the Ruach above and a fleshly body below is still a mystery to me, but I'm not going to hate on the Gnostics for claiming to hold an experienced knowledge on the subject. Don't be ridiculous. And so here is what the Gnostic Apocalypse of Kepha has to say about the riotous crowd. So finally getting to the book that I was leading up to. 
As the Savior, that would be Yahusha, was sitting in the temple, I saw the priest and the people running up to us with stones as if they would kill us. And I was afraid that we were going to die. And he said to me, Kepha, I have told you many times that they are, they are blind ones who have no guide. If you want to know their blindness, put your hands upon your eyes, your robe, and say what you see. But when I had done it, I did not see anything, of course, because his, his hands are over his eyes. I said, no one sees this way. Again, he told me, do it again. And there came in me fear with joy, for I saw a new light greater than the light of day. And then it came down upon the Savior, and I told him about those things which I saw. And he said to me again, lift up your hands and listen to what the priest and the people are saying. And I listened to the priests as they sat with the scribes. The multitudes were shouting with their voice. When he heard these things from me, he said to me, pick up your ears and listen to the things they are saying. And I listened again. As you sit, they are praising you. And when I said these things, the Savior said, I have told you that these people are blind and deaf. Now then, listen to the things which they are telling you in a mystery and guard them. Do not tell them to the sons of this age, for they shall blaspheme you in these ages, since they are ignorant of you, but they will praise you in knowledge. And that's from the Gnostic Apocalypse of Kepha. Reads awfully similar to Bezora Kepha 5, don't it? You may have noticed the dot, dot, dot after the first sentence. That was my personal uh, improvisation. The text reads, as the Savior was sitting in the temple, but then includes a couple of paragraphs of information which I didn't think necessary to add. It, just, it took away from this conversation. I simply wanted to show you the location of their whereabouts. It is while seated in the temple with Mashiach, the Kepha sees a riotous mob led by the priest, stones clutched in their fist. We are often told the riotous mob is a vision, but that may not be the whole story. The apocalypse or unveiling directs us to what Kepha saw going on beyond the spiritual curtain, but only after cupping his hands over his eyes. Their arrogance was such that they were actually praising Yahusha among their heaping of insults. And just so we're clear, the mob arrived before Kepha's unveiling. Perhaps they too are a vision of what is to come, making this more so a dream within a dream sort of vision. FYI, they have arrived with one purpose, to hang Yahusha from a tree. And it goes down in the temple, not the Mount of Olives. The scenario is somewhat of a match with what we've already encountered. Pilate presumably escorted Yahusha to the temple, according to the Hebrew Gospels, and then the mob overtook him there. Therefore, I'm wondering if the Gnostic apocalypse of Kepha takes place, uh, and I'm just speculating this, I'm not saying it does, I'm wondering if this takes place somewhere on the chronological timeline of Mashiach's passion. Maybe, maybe even when Kepha was attempting to warn his, warm his bum by the fire. But how could that be? Yahushua and Kepha were physically separated at that precise moment. But were they, though? Need I remind you that docetism is the topic of the hour, but even that may be misdirection. The stunning ending to Kepha's apocalypse is that Yahusha's fleshly counterpart was crucified, whereas his true divine being was not. Follow along. Uh, so this is continuing uh, further on down the, um, the pike with uh, Kepha's apocalypse. But when he had said those things, I saw him seemingly being seized by them. 
And I said, what do I, what do I see, O Adonai, that it is you yourself whom they take and that you are grasping me? Or who is this one glad and laughing on the tree? And is it another one whose feet and hands they are striking? The Savior said to me, he whom you saw on the tree, glad and laughing, this is the living Yahusha. But this one into whose hands and feet they drive the nails is his fleshly part, which is the substitute being put to shame, the one who came into being in his likeness. But look at him and me, the Gnostic Apocalypse Akiva. You notice I didn't put chapters or verses in there because uh, there are none according to the uh, translations I've read. Theolo uh, theologians have a long history of flipping out at passages such as this one because, you know, it's Gnostic. Though I don't seem to understand the trouble they're having. Antagonists will claim there are two Yahushas, as represented by the flesh and his nefesh, and we can't have that. Whoop-de-doo. There are certainly those who will argue against the notion, stating there is no difference between the flesh and the nefesh, and they have a right to their opinion. Uh, well, I'll give a little bit more details on my history in a, in a moment here. But disagreeing with Platonists on the matter is hardly apostate. Read the passage again if need be. Try not to overlook the part where both both the fleshly and the spiritual Yahusha are hung from the tree together. They're both there. Uh, what what Kifa is noticing, he's like, there's a I see two Yahushas. I see one both on the same tree. I see one laughing and one uh, having nails driven into his flesh. It never says the fleshly Yahusha was hung whereas the spiritual one was not. No, they were both on the tree for a spiel together. The only difference is that the nails were driven into Yahushua's fleshly self. See, we're getting at the heart of the matter here. The Ruach, or the laughing Yahushua, as he is here known, responded to their ignorance in turn, because only his body was given over to them. To quote Yahushua, this is my body which is given for you. That comes from Lucas 22.19. Pilate handed the Yahudim authority over his body, but certainly not over his nefesh. I am becoming more and more convinced that Plato, despite being an obvious shell and a spook, uh, was manhandling the mysteries of heaven. To quote Aristotle, The body cannot be soul. The body is the subject of, of matter, not, was it, not what is attributed to it. Hence, the soul must be a substance in the sense of the form of a natural body having life potentially within it. D. Anima 2.1. Uh, when Aristotle was really uh, popular for the notion that the soul uh, looked exactly like the body. So if you were to see my soul, I would have hands, arms, face. A torso. This is, you know, like if you've ever seen the haunted mansion at Disneyland, they they portray ghosts looking just like people, right? They walk around, all that kind of stuff. Same ordeal. That comes from Aristotle. What Aristotle is attempting to convey is that the body only takes its form from the pre-existent soul. All right. So think about that. So, so the, I look like the way I do because my pre-existent self in heaven looked something similar. It is the nefesh which not only defines what the fleshly body will look like, it is the nefesh which animates it as well. Capiche? That is why Kepha was given the eyes to see the fleshly Yahusha hung upon the tree and the simultaneous nefesh of Yahusha laughing at everyone's ignorance while he gets up to leave. 
That's just another way of saying he died, by the way. His nefesh continued on to Sheol, whereas his body was buried in a tomb. And we'll get into the Sheol in the coming weeks. Unorthodox, maybe, but hardly apostate. It's not the big, bad boogeyman that everyone makes it out to be. It seems to me that Yahushua summed it up best when stating himself in Matthew 1028, and fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the nefesh, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body, or I should say nefesh and body in Gehenna. Even Yahushua agrees that the body and nefesh are two separate things. If I'm reading this right, a murderer is only capable of murdering the body, whereas the nefesh is untouched by him. Contrarily, destruction of the nefesh is an area accredited to the Most High alone. Hmm. Maybe the Gnostic Apocalypse of Kepha was onto something after all. We already know that Claudia Procula, that would be a Pilate's wife, had troublesome dreams because of Yahusha. And it has been often stated that Yahusha appeared to her in those dreams. Is it possible that Yahusha's nefesh, speaking with Kepha in the temple courtyard, was in itself a vision as well? So what I'm saying is that uh, uh, he may have actually not been in front of Yahusha there. He was in the temple courtyard at what point? I think during the Passion Day. And he has this, uh, this vision of his nefesh. He, he appears to Pilate's wife in a dream. He appears to, to Kepha as well. And I, I, I was going to say with my own personal experience, if you would have talked to me four or five years ago, I was of the opinion, I was so soul sleep. I was so, I mean, uh, what, what I still believe that before Yahusha, the people went to Sheol, they went to sleep there. But I was so like, you know, full retard like soul sleep I, I i went to the the conclusion that uh when you die your nefesh dies too your soul dies like you are just dead like you are gone like i i had taken the the nefesh and i had made it like a material substance almost like atheists did um and i've since pulled way far away from that and found that uh really returning back to the the whole platonist idea that i agree much more with that than i had cared to admit Back in the day, I don't know about you guys. I need to pour some more coffee here. Give me a second. My coffee's getting cold. All right. Stopping for a drink. I have to stress I'm drinking coffee so that when we, you know, for the people listening, and I'm saying like I'm stopping for a drink, they're not going like, what is that guy drinking? Is it like, you know, some hard liquor or something like that? All right. Bizarre Kifa, verse six. So hopefully you guys understood that with docetism. Hopefully that makes sense. Um, and again, you know, I, I don't. Again, I don't think it's the big bad wolf that it's made out to be. I think that the Gnostics are they're trying to convey certain messages, and they're many of them are just constantly misrepresented by the RCC and the New World Order. <clears throat> Verse six, and one of them brought a crown of thorns and put it on the head of Adonai. And others stood and spat in his eyes, and others smote his cheeks. Others pricked him with a reed, and some scorched him, saying, With this honor, let us honor the son of Elohim. Actually, when it came to the involvement of the Yahudim, I left out one very important detail. The mob of people who beat Yahushua to a bloody pulp and then set a crown of thorns upon his head are also described for us in those four Gospels. I'll give you a hint. As if you still need one. They weren't the Romans. Here's how the same scene plays out in Yochanan. So 
You can see here, I'll go ahead and read the Greek, uh, John 19.2. And the soldiers, you see there uh, the Greek word strati plated a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put on him a purple robe. And then we see in Hebrew, Yochanan, same verse, uh, chapter and verse. And the Pharisees, you see the, the Hebrew word there for perushim, prepared a crown of thorns and put it on the head of Yeshua and covered him with a scarlet garment and came unto him and said to him, and they say something naughty to him. Surely the night and day difference between the two texts hasn't escaped you. The passage on the left involves stratioti uh, and derives from the Texas Receptus. And that, of course, means soldier. Whereas the passage on the right comes to us by way of the, uh, the Spanish Hebrew and identifies that Hebrew word right there, perishim, as his killer. In English, we would say, of course, as I just mentioned, perishim. You're probably wondering how I came to that conclusion. Well, I, too, have friends who help in the sleuth work from time to time, and some of them happen to be proficient in Hebrew. The term Pharisee means one who is separated. And it, it's kind of similar to when we say set apart. And it's spelled out as follows. There it is in the Hebrew again which is what we just read in the original document. It's a match. If you don't believe me, look it up for yourself. There's a link. You can uh, go follow it. The scholars aren't talking about the Hebrew Gospels, and very few people want you to know about them. You have to wonder why. I'll go out on a limb here, and at the risk of never being allowed admission into Israel again, or maybe even Deutschland for that matter, say what most of us are already thinking. The Pharisees did it. They were personally overseeing his shellacking. Their involvement isn't a fluke either. As my commentary in Bezora Kifa commences, you will see that they continue to show up in the canonical passion narrative and in all the wrong places. I'm thinking that, I'm thinking the Hebrew Gospels aren't being spoken about for the same reason that Bezora Kifa was buried, which begs the question, supposing our controllers were successful in altering the Gospels, so as to push responsibility away from the Yahudim and to the Romans, then why couldn't they do the same to Kifa? My best guess is that Kifa was in the hands of the wrong people. Remember how I told you Bezorah Kifa was claimed to be a Nazarene text? Mm-hmm. The RCC had no use for this one. Best to make it go away. If you don't know who the Nazarene are, these were the... Uh, I believe these were the true followers of Messiah. They were uh, they followed Torah, and they believed Yahusha was their Mashiach. And you know we could do a whole study on the the church fathers <clears throat> mentioning the Nazarene, how they were a thorn in their side, and that it was very clear that the Roman Catholic Church was at war with them, and they were making life miserable on the Nazarene, and hoping they would scatter and go away. And they of course had all their they had literature that um, is not in our canon. So uh, the Bible could have looked very different if the Nazarene had won the day. Any suggestion that the Gospels may have been tampered with in order to shift blame onto the beast of Revelation rather than the whore will be more than most Bible readers can bear. And I don't blame them. It has taken me years, decades really, to come to terms with the obvious. Also, if I have learned anything in these discussions, it's that the letters of Paul takes precedence over the teachings of Mashiach. No, that was not a swipe. It wasn't a swipe at Paul at all. It's just a matter of recognizing how these things go. And so perhaps you will be happy to know the residue of their actions can still be found with the apostle. And we find this in 
First Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16, the good apostle states, For ye, brethren, became followers of the called-out assemblies of Elohim, which in Yehuda are in Mashiach Yehusha. For ye also have suffered like things from your own countrymen, even as they have from the Yahudim, who, the Yahudim, who, who did it? The Yahudim both killed Adonai Yehusha and their own prophets and have persecuted us. And they please not Elohim and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the other nations that they might be saved, to fill up their sins always, for the wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. Paul's letters were written before the Gospels, and I'm not reading anything in his account of the crucifixion regarding the Romans. It says the people who killed the prophets also killed Yahushua HaMashiach. Well, who killed the prophets? You already know the answer to that one. These same individuals please not Elohim and are contrary to all men. They are heaping the sins upon themselves and forbidding him and his contemporaries from bringing the Goy, that would be the Gentiles, into Yasharel, so that they might be saved by the Hebrew faith. That's a wild and stunning confession. Pope Francis has repeatedly claimed that the Jews had nothing to do with the death of Christ. I wonder if he's reading the uh, same book. Some of you may need to hug a pillow and watch a Holocaust movie, hoping to wash the naughty thought of their guilt from your Zionist education. I won't try to stop you. Others will get to work scouring the pages of Paul's letters, hoping to prove me wrong, and in the process, Paul as well. You will pull a 1 Corinthians 2.8 on me, which states, which none of the rulers of this age knew, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Yah of glory. That comes from 1 Corinthians 2.8, which... Uh, yeah, different book than First Thessalonians. The Greek word for rulers is uh, archonton, or archon has become a somewhat popular word in the world of Nephilim research. Somebody is prepared to tell me the archon word is referring to the prince of the power of the air and his confederate of divine beings, and I don't have a problem with that. Um, obviously, Hasatan was behind it. There is plenty of scripture which states the temple controllers were spokesmen for Hasatan, but I can't find a single passage which says the same of Pilate, that he was a spokesman for Hasatan. Turns out the actual word archonton or archon is used in only two other places in the New Testament. Lucas uses it in 14.1 to refer to the quote-unquote leaders of the parashim, the Pharisees, Elsewhere, Yochanan 748 employs the word to describe the chief rulers of the Pharisees. So what Paul is saying then is that, again, there's only three references. Two of them refer to the leaders of the, the Pharisees. So the third one, you know, is that re referring to rulers of another group or the same group as the other two? What Paul is saying then is that the leaders and the chief rulers of the parashim, the Pharisees, were completely arrogant as to who they were crucifying, just as he, Paul, was at an earlier hour. Had they known then, they never would have gone through with it. Well, you would, you would hope. Perhaps before this is over, I will show proof as to why not even Hasatan knew who he was crucifying. I figure this is... Uh, and, and I just need to reiterate there, I, I don't believe Hasatan knew 
that Yahushua was the literal son of Elohim. And I will go over those details at a later hour, not during this study. You're just going to have to hold on. I figure this is as good a time as any to bring the Shroud of Turin into this discussion because unlike what we were, what we are told about it, the Shroud does not give witness to a Roman crucifixion. If you guys uh, tuned in to my end of the Millennial Kingdom talk, I, I went over great length uh, with the Shroud. I won't be repeating it all here, but it's really good for this discussion. Yes, it is true. There are nails in his hands. And the man within was crucified very much as the Romans would crucify someone, but come on. Even the Shroud researchers are shocked at the brutality the man within was expected to endure. It went way beyond every standard Roman crucifixion presently known to us. Why am I even beating around the bush? The man within is Yahushua HaMashiach. There is no longer any doubt in my mind to that fact. Uh, if you doubt that, if you don't think it is, I'm not here to give all the evidence for that. We're here to talk about uh, evidence as to who crucified him. My intent, how, okay, and I say that right here. My intent, however, is not to prove the validity of, validity of the shroud on this venture. I have already done that in my End of the Millennial Kingdom paper, which I just mentioned. My entire point in bringing it up again is because Yahushua was the murder victim of a mob mentality. And the shroud proves that fact as well. Even if you disagree with me and claim the Romans did it, you will be pressed to admit that his tormentors went unchecked in their duties. Well, I am here to tell you that the shroud agrees with the mob mentality, as seen in Bizarre Akiva, as well as the Hebrew Gospels. Let's get into it. There have been as many as 370 wounds counted on the front of Mashiach's body with well over 600 estimated in total. The torture device has even been identified as a Roman flagrum. The typical whip was comprised of a handle to which two, maybe three thongs of rope or leather were tied and uh, tipped with small, sharp pieces of wood, bone, or metal. This one in particular uh, was of the three-thronged variety, the one that uh, was in the shroud. You'll see a, a picture of it on the next page complete with lid weights shaped like dumbbells. His killers spared no expense. Mashiach was stripped naked and then tied up to a pole while his tormentors had their way with him. Each lash lasted but a second, though the sharp ends of the, of the flagrum would have cut into his skin and perhaps even lashed onto something of value, like an internal body part or bone or something, uh, before being ripped out again, causing extremely serious internal lesions. The energy of each blow would have been absorbed within microseconds, causing his entire body to recoil with the excruciating electrifying sensation for several seconds, if not minutes. We don't really know how long the, 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 the pain, the sensation would have lasted before his tormentor went at him again and again and again and again. The entire episode was overkill. To say he was sunburned and dehydrated and that his knees were crushed under the weight of the crucifixion device, which he carried due, to, due no doubt to a sudden fall on the journey uh, to the Mount of Skulls, is nothing compared to the greater conclusion. Mashiach was already a walking dead man. At the end of the scourging, this is before he even picked up the cross, he was going to die. Had the mob shown him mercy and chose a bed rather than a tree to hang him from, he would have been dead within several short hours. And this is the people who have investigated the shroud have, have all stated this. 
There was no going back. He had already lost liters of blood. His kidneys had stopped functioning before he even picked up the cross. His guts were nearly exposed and hanging out. The person within the shroud wasn't simply crucified. No, the Romans didn't crucify before a crucifixion. He was brutalized and murdered many times over, telling us how the temple controllers really felt about the son of Elohim. The governor of Yehuda washed his hands of the entire affair. I know I keep stating that fact, but reminders are necessary when dealing with cognitive dissonance. You don't wash your hands of a judgment only to go th through with it moments later. And I will remind you with far more ferocity than what any other Roman crucifixion would dare imagine. Mind you, unless that person were deranged. You, you would have to say that Pilate was uh, totally deranged to wash his hands, say, I'm innocent of this man's blood, but let's, let's just torment this guy beyond, you know, dis dis disfigure him be beyond human recognition before we even hang him from the tree. Like that is, that is like a bipolar pendulum swing right there. And look at how surprised Pilate was to learn of Yahushua's death. In the gospel, I'm quoting here from the gospel of Mark, Marcus 15, 44 through 45, he says, And Pilate marveled if he were already dead. And calling unto him the centurion, he asked him whether he had been any while dead. And when he knew it of the centurion, he gave the body to Yosef. Believe it or not, I have just given you two further clues pertaining to Pilate's innocence. Had Pilate been the one to oversee his crucifixion, then his surprise would be akin to saying, Yahushua went out like a chump rather than a champ. That's not what happened, though. The face of the man in the shroud speaks of a suffering servant, but he also has a look of shalom on him. There's that uh, docetism for you. This is someone who drank from the cup that was passed his way and did so with dignity, completing the task before him. Mission accomplished. I'm more inclined to think Pilate's surprise uh, teetered upon a reaction of, dang, you people took human mutilation to a whole new level. Is this how you treat your gods? And of course, even further evidence to the mob mentality can be found within the crown of thorns, which we saw in this verse here of uh, Bezor Kifa, of which the shroud attests to. The crown wasn't a carefully crafted garland, as we are so often led to believe in Hollywood movies and artwork. It was a literal thorn bush, like a, like a, a briar. They took a briar patch and just, just like just shove it over his head. It was a, uh, his controllers, of, <laughs> I brought it right there. His controllers shoved a briar patch over his skull so as to work the crowd into its beehive frenzy. Roman tormentors weren't responsible for that thing. Had they done so, it would have been strange indeed for Pilate to respond in the described matter. And here's what he writes, or says, this is what Yochanan writes in John 19. And Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was Yahusha, the Netzeri, or the Nazarite, and king of the Yahudim. The title then read many of the uh, Yahudim, for the place where Yahusha was crucified was nigh to the city, and it was written in Hebrew and uh, Greek and Latin. Then said the chief priest of the Yahudim to Pilate, write not and king of the Yahudim, but that he said, I am king of the Yahudim. And Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. His torturers had given Yahushua a mock coronation, whereas Pilate straight up calls him the king of the Yahudim. The temple controllers didn't like that. 
And their response seems to identify who it is that mocked him in the first place. Whereas Pilate gave him dignity and honor. Explain to me again how a Roman governor crucifies someone on charges that he is a threat to the establishment and Caesar going so far as to crown him with a briar patch, but then pulls a stunt such as what has just been described. Pilate had already given his judgment. Yahushua was innocent. Yes, he handed Yahushua over to the Yahudim to do what they wanted with him, but he was clearly protesting their decision with the sign. Believe me, I already know what happens next. I will be told I'm wasting my breath, that it doesn't matter who the writers of scripture identified as the murderer, and that even today we are to pay no attention to the people pulling the strings and dialing the knobs, pushing buttons and all that behind the curtain, because we all had a part in his slaughter. Did I get that about right? Sure, let's keep fingering Pontius Pilate as the culprit then. Best not to rock the boat when a patsy has already been made of him. Also, you can speak for yourself on that one. I mean, if you want to equate your personal actions to Yehuda uh, or Judas Iscariot, the man who betrayed the son of Elohim for 30 pieces of silver, then that's your personal business. Clearly, there is a distinct difference between those who fled out of fear and the others who spat upon him, or even the few who managed to arrive at the cross and weep for his righteousness. How you see yourself in the scenario matters. I mean, there were, as I recall, three women who showed up to weep at his feet. Like, who do you see? How do you see yourself in this scenario? All right, we are moving on now to Bezora Kifa 7, verse 7. And they brought two criminals and they crucified Ananias between them, but he held his peace as though having no pain. There is more of that docetism, which likely nobody was wondering about until I thought to bring it up. Now it is nearly impossible to unsee it. Am I right? You're welcome. The mere notion that Yahushua would be mutilated beyond human recognition and yet remain spiritually astute, if not perfectly harmonious within himself, would be a head-scratcher for sure if it were not for his being knitted with the Father. The Hebrew word for the oneness which the Father and Son enjoyed is ikad. It is a word which describes a compound unity. We cannot be, and this is often used for the Trinity, and it's a terrible argument for the Trinity, and I'll probably get into that in a little bit. We cannot be certain if Kifa already established that fact, seeing as how the original Bezora was probably much lengthier. What does seem certain, however, is that Kifa is asking his reader to stare at the fleshly body of Yahushua HaMashiach and contemplate upon the inner divine nature. Uh, so we see here in the books of the Nazarene 2885, uh, yeah, 85 verses in one chapter, uh, Yahushua remained calm and unshaken, though he had been three hours in the judgment chamber. The same observation is given by the writer of, of the uh, Nazarene. Yahushua remained calm and unshaken throughout the course of his mission. By the way, I am convinced Aristobulus is the author of that book. Who is Aristobulus? But Kepha's father-in-law. Elsewhere, Bezora Yochanan records Yahushua's bloody perspiration in the garden. I know that's what some of you were thinking. Somebody will try to pull a fast one on me and claim the sweating blood disproves passages such as Kepha 7. Well, then I will remind you of the shroud again. It is further testimony as to, uh, to Yahusha's shalom. This is a man whom the people mocked 
while he hung there in agony, demanding that he save himself. I wonder if they would have hurled the same barrage of insults his way had he expressed pain as they hoped he would. They couldn't break him, which is what I'm saying, that it's very possible that they were trying to get him to like they, they wanted so desperately as they're just like tearing his flesh out. They just so desperately wanted him to, you know, to wince and to to um to you know say uncle or whatever, right? Just to get that satisfaction of the beating. And and I speculate that he may have not been giving him that satisfaction. The blood recorded by Yokanan is testified to by the shroud as well. The darkest bloodstain on the shroud derives from the wound on his side. That's a post-mortem flow, obviously. It wraps around his backside, forming a puddle there. In my other paper, the one I mentioned earlier, The End of the Millennial Kingdom, I go into far more details regarding the image given to us in the shroud, though it is good to know that the bloodstains are a result of contact with the cloth, whereas the image itself derives from a different origin. Well, notice how red the blood is. It is a red of a crimson, crim, crimson color, and that shouldn't be. The blood mystery is what has most fact-checkers claiming foul, uh, saying it's a it's a hoax, but they have turned out to be the Karens in the end. At any crime scene, blood quickly becomes brown or even black in, in very little time. In fact, that's one of the ways that you can uh, see many of the hoaxes out there, that they have like a stage theater blood. It's not even real blood. Not so with the shroud. The blood remains a distinct crimson color. In any other scenario, that would be deemed completely impossible, proving the shroud to be a hoax. The answer, however, has already been known among chemists. Uh, was it a bilirubin? Bilirubin is a pigment that enters the blood with the breakdown of red red cells under conditions of great stress or suffering, particularly to the torture which the person in the shroud was clearly forced to endure. And we're talking twenty-four to thirty-six hours of torture. His liver would have eventually flooded the bloodstream with the bilirubin enzyme which i have already described in that precise moment his blood would have remained red forever i'm <clears throat> i'm not sure if you notice kifa 7 speaks nothing of a cross yahushua was simply crucified though the bizarre does mention it later on everyone who read the book as part of kifa's original audience would have known what the word crucified implied the very word indicates a method of capital punishment in which the victim is tied or nailed to a large wooden cross or beam and left to hang until their ensuing death. I am half expecting there to be protests based upon the assumption that the Yahudim would never choose crucifixion. I mean, you'd think they would have picked up some stones instead, as per the requirements of a false prophet in Deuteronomy 13.10. But then it just goes to show that they weren't following the Torah after all, despite claims to the contrary. And killing the Torah made flesh, that would be the word made flesh, the Torah made flesh, they even went out of their way to ensure the prophecy of the suffering servant in Yeshayahu 53 became a reality. In any ways, crucifixion went well beyond the Romans. The same execution device was employed by the Persians and the uh, Carthaginians, um, among others. Now, one thing I was researching this week, you're not going to hear from tonight, is that there were hundreds of Pharisees that are one that were one time crucified on crosses. And it's kind of, it, it's interesting. They're uh, not so long before this. So they were taking the same method of how they were killed and they're turning this on Messiah. 
Still, though, the act of crucifixion must have felt unnatural to them. I'm even thinking they were attempting to cast the blame back upon the Romans, if even subconsciously. And I think it's very clear that both Herod and the temple controllers really wanted the Romans to do it. They really wanted to push it off on them. There is a rather odd passage from the Book of the Cave of Treasures. You guys will recall, I, I probably went over this last year. It's kind of a little humorous, which testifies to the absurdity of their action. Really, you never really know where the confirmations will turn up. It's why I, I always like to keep my eyes open when reading. The clue this time around involves the Ark of the Covenant, I think. Not really sure. I'm still unsure about that part. I am delivering this bit of information with a question mark, which means the upcoming reference will be up for you to decide whether this is historically accurate or not. All I can really ask of my reader is that you give it the old college try. I'm just delivering the information. You guys uh, figure this one out. And this comes, of course, from the Book of the Cave of Treasures, which is a really good read. Now, Yosef was from Yerushalayim, but he had ma been made a counselor in, in Ramah. Uh, that would be Arimathea. And all the letters which had been written during the whole period of Pilate's administration had been sealed with the seal which Yosef carried. I didn't mention that last week when I said they were friends. Whoa, there's a third confirmation. I totally missed that, guys. There's a third confirmation right there that he is, wow, he's sealing Pilate's letters. Tells you they had a really a trust between them. And when Yosef had taken down the body of our Adonai from the cross, the Yahudim, the Jews, ran and took the cross, <laughs> like so humorous, and brought it into the temple because the pieces of wood thereof were the bearing poles of the Ark of the Covenant. And Nicodemus also embalmed the body of our Adonai and swathed it in clean new linen swathing. And Yosef made it all ready for the grave and buried it in a new tomb, which had been made for Yahushua, the son of Nun, to be buried in. The Book of the Cave of Treasures. It says the Jews ran and took the cross and hauled it off to the temple lumber yard soon as Yosef removed the body of Mashiach. How is that even remotely possible if the cross were a Roman crucifixion device? Since when did centurions hand crosses out as souvenirs after the prisoner was declared dead? Hmm. If I am reading this right, the claim being presented is that the beams which held Messiah up was the cross of a different nature than what we have come to know. The pieces of wood were the bearing poles of the Ark of the Covenant, apparently, telling us once again that Pilate had nothing to do with it. Well, <laughs> that's messed up. Would it be safe to call this a sacrilege of true? It just goes to show how little they thought of Yehua the Elohim as only Levites were capable of carrying the Ark, and it is the, uh, the Perishim doing the killing. And uh, you'll see in upcoming weeks where I'm going to be talking about the conflict actually between the Levites and the Pharisees and how the Pharisees were doing everything in their power to remove the Levites. They did not want them calling the shots. They did not want them to be the guardians of the Torah. And that's just an official history, by the way. It's not even a conspiracy. Anybody else would be automatically declared dead. But wait. What was the Ark of the Covenant doing in Yerushalayim to begin with? I thought it was stashed away somewhere elsewhere. Seems suspicious if you ask me. Perhaps the most straightforward explanation of all of this is that the poles intended for carrying the ark were uh, prepped and ready for its anticipated discovery in a mountain cave or at the bottom of a well. Yes, that must be it. Some Jews probably dug them out of the janitor's closet during the uh, excitement of the flogging. They needed two-by-fours, and the local hardware store was already closed for Passover. But then I shan't neglect the irony. Yermiyahu had very likely stashed the ark into a grotto directly below the place where the Yahudim had used its poles to crucify him with. 
light that pipe and smoke smoke it, why don't you? I mean, think about this. I mean, if this is true, I could I could totally see this, by the way. I mean, I, I've thought about this a lot. Like, if the Ark of the Covenant is directly below Yahushua HaMashiach, where he is crucified, and his blood actually goes down, goes upon the mercy seat as the atoning sacrifice for humanity, I mean, how crazy is it that they don't know this, the Yahudim, that they're actually grabbing the Ark of the Covenant poles to make into a cross? I mean that's just pure, you know, poetic. I mean that's that's crazy. That's crazy talk. Lastly, there is the matter of the two thieves. Bazora Kifa has very little to say about them. Had he put in the extra legwork, it would have only aided his case regarding who was doing the crucifying. But then some of you would accuse him of laying it on rather thick. I suppose it is up to me then to fill in the details. There are numerous numerous references to the two thieves in the apocrypha. Their names are Gistas and Dimas. Hopefully, it will not it will not confuse you to learn that their names are also listed as uh, Dumacus and Titus in other texts. So Gistas is Dumacus and Dimas is Titus, I believe. Well, here is their early, earliest appearance into the narrative. It involves Yahusha as an infant with his parents, Miriam and Yosef, en route to Mitzrayim. <clears throat> but, but as they go along, behold, they see two robbers lying in the way, and along with them a great number of robbers who were their associates sleeping. Now, those two robbers into whose hands they had fallen were Titus and Dumachus. Titus therefore said to Dumachus, I beseech you to let these persons go freely, and so that our comrades may not see them. And as Dumachus refused, Titus said to him again, Take to yourself forty drachmas from me and hold this as a pledge. At the same time, he held out to him the belt which he had about his waist to keep him, keep him from opening his mouth or speaking. And the lady Miriam, that would be uh, Mary, the mother of Yahusha, seeing that the robber had done them a kindness, said to him, uh, Adonai, or I, I guess you could say Yahuwah Elohim, will sustain you by his right hand and will grant you remission of your sins. And uh, the Lord, or Adonai, Yahusha answered and said to his mother, 30 years hence, O my mother, the Yahudim will crucify me at Yerushalayim, and these two robbers will be raised upon the cross along with me, Titus on my right hand and Dumachus on my left. And after that day, Titus shall go before me into paradise. So that comes from the uh, Arabic Bezorah of the infancy of the Savior. I hope you noticed. No worries, though, if you didn't. It's why I underline these things. Yahushua prophesied that the Yahudim would crucify him in 30 years' time. Yahudim, and that Titus and Dumachus would be raised at his side. FYI, I'm not concerned about those who bring the reliability of this text into question on the basis that an infant is sparking conversation. We have already covered the docetic elements of Mashiach, and here we are once again presented with another. It was a very common theme back then. This idea that you, the, the Yahusha, our Savior, was much larger than the body he was, uh, he was uh, accompanying. And now that I think about it, I wish I had included the uh, the Gospel of Bezora Thomas in there, where Yahushua says, you know, you split open this uh, log of wood and I'm there. He's saying, like, I'm, I'm everywhere, guys. I'm, I'm much larger than my body. 
My immediate point is the document itself. The individuals copying these books believed the Yahudim were the responsible party members. It's a tough sell today and would have been, uh, would have been then, uh, it would have been a tough sell then as well, had the Gospels not been written differently. Do you see my point? I'm of the opinion that the Greek Gospels did in fact line up with the Hebrew Gospels at one time, and that these writers were simply conveying what was already commonly believed based upon what they read. That is the theory I'm putting forward. By simple deduction, the two thieves were killed by the same people uh, who offed Mashiach, which begs the question as to why. Supposing the Romans off Yahusha, and they didn't, but supposing for the moment that they did, then you can easily see why their shared fates, their shared fate raises no further inquisition. Rome crucified rebels. It's what they did. The Gospels furthermore give, no, give us no indication as to their guilt. The Yahudim crucifying two other men along with Yahushua, however, raises eyebrows. The temple controllers were given an opportunity, one which they hastily thought to include two other criminals in. What did they do exactly to receive a shared fate with Mashiach? So if you need that just rephrased, if the Romans aren't doing the crucifying, then why are these two guys crucified with Mashiach? I have an answer for you, but I'm unsure about giving it. <laughs> the following text gives great detail regarding their crimes, but is also a Torah-hating document, telling me that the Ruach HaKadosh was not an influencer of it whatsoever. How hateful was it? The writer tells us this in the opening line. I am a Yosef of Arimathea, or Yosef of Rama, who begged from Pilate the body of Adonai Jesus for burial, and who for this cause was kept close in prison by the murderous and God-hating or God-fighting Jews, who also, keep pay attention to this, who also, keeping to the law, he's talking about the Torah, have by Moshe himself become partakers in tribulation, the narrative of Yosef of Arimathea. Ouch. The writer has just thrown Moshe under the bus, accusing him of being an immoral individual. He's saying that because Moshe uh, gave the Torah, he is just as uh, immoral and hateful as, as those who killed Mashiach. He's saying the Yahudim acted towards Yahusha in a murderous manner because of their association with the Torah handed to Moshe on Sinai. There is some cognitive dissonance right there. I'm not reading too much into it either. The same writer goes on to make the following claim. And the robber, having uh, thus spoken, Yusus says, says to him, you notice I, I changed it from Yahusha to the, the more Greek or Latin-sounding Yesus. Amen, amen, I say to thee, Demas, that today thou shalt be with me in paradise. And the sons of the kingdom, the children of Abraham and Yitzhak and Yaakov, and Moshe shall be cast out into outer darkness, and there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And thou alone shalt dwell in paradise until my second appearing, when I am to judge those who do not confess my name. So we've talked about in the past about the sons of the kingdom being thrown out. Uh, this writer is saying that uh, everyone in the Old Testament, Abraham, Yitzhak, Yaakov, Moshe, they're all being thrown into the outer darkness. So in review... Moshe, as well as Abraham and the patriarchs, Yitzhak and Yaakov, essentially everyone who entered into a covenant with Yahuwah, Elohim, are cast into the outer darkness. 
That's the surprise twist of the lemon in this gospel story. Nobody makes it into paradise but the thief on the cross being the first person in human history who got it right, apparently, LOL. The present writer, and I couldn't be at greater odds by this point, seeing as how I advocate it is the Torah keepers who enter paradise and not the other way around. Wasn't it Adam and Chua or, uh, who were cast out of paradise because they failed to guard the commands? Again, the cognitive dissonance is through the roof on this one. Seriously, are you buying this dribble? Even the modern-day Christian who has done away with the Torah in favor of tradition, 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 is, uh, I think that was a, a, a great song, a uh, popular song in Fiddler on the Roof, by the way, is probably going, whoa, boy, by this point. Back the lawless trolley up. And so you might be wondering why I'm even bringing this gospel into the conversation. Simple. Because the writer of the narrative of, of Yosef of Arimathea agrees with countless other books on any number of observations, all except one detail. Yeah, the, the, the titty twist ending where everyone but the lawless one are thrown into the outer darkness. Ridiculous. He literally goes down, uh, Yahusha goes out of Sheol, and he, I think he just releases Adam. I think in this, and everyone else is, is, uh, is, is thrown into the, um, the, uh, the, 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 whatever, thrown into eternal darkness. That's just the thing about controlled opposition. They feed you the truth, but only in such a way as to lead you right back onto the wide road of destruction. Basically, this guy saying, don't, be, uh, don't keep the commands. Don't be faithful. Is there ever a better example than this book? Ironic, since it goes into great detail as to the crimes of the very criminal who was strung up next to Mashiach. And here's what we learn of them. Uh, so again, this is from the narrative of Joseph of Arimathea, and it says, The first, his name, Gistas, put travelers to death, murdering them with the sword, and others he exposed naked. And he hung up women by their heels, head down, and cut off their breasts, and drank the blood of infant, infants' limbs, never having known Elohim, not obeying the laws, being violent from the beginning and doing such deeds. He sounds like a regular Hannibal Lecter. And the case of the other was as follows. He was called Demas. Now, Demas is the one who repented on the cross and was by birth a Galilean and kept an inn. He made attacks upon the rich, but was good to the poor. A thief like Tobit, for he buried the bodies of the poor. If you haven't read the book of Tobit, I highly recommend you do. And he set his hand to robbing the multitude of the Jews and stole the Torah itself in Jerusalem and stripped naked the daughter of Caiaphas, uh, Caiaphas being the high priest, who was priestess of the sanctuary and took away from its place the mysterious deposit itself placed there by Solomon. Such were his doings. Sick. Guess, see, I already said I jumped ahead of myself. I guess the Gistas was a Hannibal Lecter, as Hannibal Lecter as they come. We have before us another reference to the sinister ritualistic practice of baby blood consumption. That's straight up macabre. Um, it's something that, you know, uh, happens a lot today. The guy probably owned an abortion clinic. Perhaps he even has published the first spirit cooking cookbook. Who really knows? The dude was so vile, the Romans would have no problem nailing him to a plank of wood. 
But then the crimes of Demas were committed against the Yahudim, specifically against the daughter of Caiaphas. He raped her. There are other crimes listed here as well. He stole the Torah from the temple, being one of them. The so-called mysterious deposit placed there by Shaloma or Solomon is suspect, seeing as how the temple was built by Herod centuries after the fact. It is certainly unclear what the writer's knowledge is of the Torah, probably not much, uh, much less the Tanakh as a whole, though his comparison with Tobit is interesting to say the least, telling us that he uh, had definitely read Tobit. Um, which was a you know highly you know Jewish book. There is no question the criminal being described was a bad dude. The judgment of rape, however, is described in Deuteronomy 22, 28 through 29, and this wasn't it. He should have been required to pay a hefty fine, and no, the daughter of Caiaphas would not have been forced to marry him, as per the rumor. The consequence of theft is another mismatch with his crucifixion. But then, as I've already pointed out, so was Yehusha's. If they were accusing Mashiach of being a false prophet, stoning would have been the proper option. Except for the aforementioned names, Torah was not being followed by anyone involved. Let's not get distracted, though. Caiaphas had personal reasons for wanting to crucify the two thieves, particularly Demas. He was given his window of opportunity and took advantage of it. Gistas has often been referred to as the impenitent thief, the thief who refused to repent. He is the thief who mocked Yahushua while on the cross and failed to repent of his actions. Demas, on the other hand, is the one who understood who it was being slain before him and requested Mashiach's mercy. Their story is told to us in Matthew 27, 38 through 44, though it is only in Lucas chapter 23, verses 39 through 43, that we learn of the one's penitence. Marcus 15, 27 also makes mention of the thieves, but only in passing. So of all the gospel accounts, it is only, uh, certainly of the canonical, it's only Lucas that uh, talks about that one of the two is repentant. Well, here is the same account according to Nicodemus. As you know, Basora Nicodemus is one of my favorite uh, gospels. I love that gospel. And they are given names. So this comes from Bezora Nicodemus, chapter 7. But one of the two thieves who, who were crucified with Yehusha, whose name was Gistas, said to Yehusha, If thou art the Mashiach, deliver thyself in us. But the thief who was crucified on his right hand, whose name was Demas, answering rebuked him and said, Does not, does not thou fear Elohim, who art condemned to this punishment? We indeed receive rightly and justly the demerit of our actions, but this Yehusha, what evil hath he done? After this groaning, he said to Yehusha, Adonai, remember me when thou come into thy kingdom. Yehusha answering said to him, Verily I say unto thee, that this day thou shalt be with me in paradise. Demas requests that Yehusha remember him when he comes into his kingdom, implying a belief in the resurrection and second coming. Yehusha's response turns the table on the narrative which is to be expected. It's literally a pastime of his. And saying he would be with them in paradise on that very day, there's the war of the comma for you, he was answering his request and pinpointing the coordinates of his kingdom. There are fun footnotes everywhere. That's not what I wanted you to see, though. 
Demas makes yet another appearance towards the end of the same book, uh, Bezora and Nicodemus. I was kind of just setting it up there. So this comes from chapter 20. And while the holy Hanoch, or Hanok, that would be Enoch, and Eliyahu, that would be Elijah, were relating this. They're telling a story. I don't need to cover that. Behold, there came another man in a miserable figure carrying the mark of the Tav upon his shoulders. And when all the saints saw him, they said to him, Who art thou? For thy countenance is like a thief. And why dost thou carry a cross upon thy shoulders, or the mark of the Tav? To which he answering said, Ye say right, for I was a thief who committed all sorts of wickedness upon the earth. And here it is that I want you to pay attention to. And the Yahudim crucified me with Yahusha. And I observed the surprising things which happened in the creation of, at the crucifixion of Adonai Yahusha. And I believed him to be the creator of all things and the almighty king. And I prayed to him saying, Adonai, remember me when thou come into thy kingdom. Zora Nicodemon 25-9. Many get hung up with the notion that the cross is a pagan symbol, and Demas just so happened to be carrying one. In heaven. Uh-oh. <laughs> the problem isn't so much that Yahushua was crucified upon one. No, the issue is whether or not Christians should continue to employ the cross as a symbol, period. The cross is most notably identified with uh, Ankh and uh, you can see that spelled A-N-K-H, an ancient Egyptian hieroglyph signifying a quote-unquote life. Its Latin counterparts is known as the crux ansata. Do understand that I'm completely against praying to a cross. I just want to make that known. Okay, I'm not saying carry around the cross or pray to it or kiss it or you know, put a messiah on it. So I'm not saying any of that stuff or whatever else one might imaginatively do with the cross, don't get me started. Especially the sick and sadistic practice of crucifying Yahushua upon one so that mass may ensue. I've said this repeatedly, that, that the Catholics do it repeatedly. They're doing it probably right now, this very moment, as I'm somewhere in the world, probably hundreds of thousands of places in the world, and that's straight-up evil. But then notice what is actually going on in this passage. Demas arrived in paradise carrying the mark of Tav. Are you not amped to hear about it? The mark of Tav, man. Compare that to the cross, and there's a huge difference going on here. Huge. Or as, uh, as, as Trump might say, huge. Supposing you don't have the faintest clue what I'm talking about, then I will help you. It's why I'm here. Give me a moment to type out another Bible verse. So this comes from Beer Sheath, Genesis. Uh, 48, 13 to 14. And Yosef took them both, Ephraim in his right hand towards Yashrael's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand towards Yashrael's right hand, and brought them near unto him. This is the blessing when uh, Yosef is in is in Mitraim, um, and uh, Yaakov, or Yashrael's at the end of his life, and Yosef wants him to bless his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And Yasharel stretched out his right hand and laid it upon Ephraim's hand. Uh, so he takes, this is my right hand. He goes this way. And then, uh, so he puts on Ephraim's head, who was the younger. And his left hand right here, boom, right here, upon Manisha's head, guiding his hands wittingly, for Manisha was the firstborn. Do you see what is going on here? 
I didn't highlight anything this time. So you will have to put more work into figuring out for yourself, though. I'm telling you right here, right? Well, here is the situation. Yosef wanted Manasseh, his firstborn son, to receive the greater blessing. It's why he propped him up with his uh, left hand over here so that Yashro could lay the right hand upon him. Um, Yashorel, however, chose a different route. He placed both hands upon both children at the same moment, except his right gravitated towards the child in Yosef's right hand, which would be Ephraim, and vice versa. In order to do that, he would have formed an X with his arms. That's the mark of Toth. There is no substitute. Now, I, I figured this out, actually. I, I guess I'm a little slow. A lot of you had already probably figured this out. But I figured this part out when I was uh, uh, researching this. You might be wondering why the Yahudim would, would uh, crucify Mashiach in the Mark of Tav if it was the side of Yaakov to the Goyim nations. And you'll notice how Demas states it was the Yahudim who crucified him rather than the Romans. The answer is an easy one. Arrogance. Though the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet is Tav, uh, the current Hebrew letter Tav doesn't look like an X at all. It takes on the shape of a lowercase n. You can see it right there on the right. It, 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 it looks like an n in appearance. Not the Paleo Hebrew, though. The Paleo appears very much like the Tav they crucified him upon. Only problem is the Yahudim were no longer reading nor writing in the Paleo, which is why I said it was an ongoing problem of arrogance. If I had accused the Parashim of crucifying Mashiach on a Tav, they would have laughed their asses off, claiming the Tav is an N and that he was crucified on no such thing. Yahuwah had removed his sacred language from their understanding when they were taken into Babylonian captivity. And new Hebrew emerged afterwards, allowing them to stumble right into their folly. Oddly enough, Kepha's brother, Andre, is often depicted as being crucified on an X-shaped cross, or a tav. That's precisely how I suspect, uh, suspect Yehusha was crucified. I did, now, I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe he was. Maybe he was really on a, like a pole with like a, a crossbeam or like a tree that they, they placed a crossbeam down on. Uh, but I think there's, there, there's a good case to be had that they literally crucified him on a tav. Additionally, if the cave of treasures is anything to go by, and I offer my skepticism, then they pulled the Ark of the Covenant's poles from the storage space and formed it into an X for support. There's no way the poles of the Ark of Covenant would have formed a T. It would have been an X. The typical T which he is depicted upon would likely, as I say, would likely never work for scenarios such as that one. I can't see a situation which would have the bearing poles for the Ark of the Covenant standing upright. The afternoon, the afternoon breeze would blow it over. LOL. And an X, though. Now we're talking. All right. So I'm thinking this might be a good place to uh, pull over and rest for the night, a good rest stop. Um, and we, I've been going for nearly two hours. I hope you guys enjoyed that commentary. Now, I will be – hopefully you guys have been putting your questions in. I see a lot of commentary here. Uh, I haven't – been reading if I'm getting a shellacking from you guys tonight or not, if you guys enjoyed this or not. But I will be calling Sarah up here, Sarah E, to ask some of the questions that you have been throwing my way tonight. So it looks like she's up here now. Let me know if you can hear me. I can hear you. You're <laughs> on. There we go. Okay. Wow. That was another 
phenomenal couple of hours, Noel. Thank you for that. <laughs> the chat has been super busy and there are a lot of really great comments in addition to some questions. But there was also a couple of questions from last week that did not get answered and I wonder if maybe we would have the time to go over a couple of those too. Absolutely. Let's do it. Let's fire away. Awesome. Okay. The first one um, was talking about how Yahuwah is done with the land and he gave a writ of divorce. How does Yahusha's death change this, if at all? You know, as a wife can remarry after her husband's death, so does Messiah's death change that writ of divorce and how he is finished with the land? That that's a good question. So the, it, it, if I'm understanding the the common uh, research being put forward, the the common conclusion by many within the Torah movement, it's that the I like to call it the great divorce. Uh, that the this great divorce with Israel, that it's referring to the actual people, um, and not the land. My current conclusion is that the divorce is from the land itself. And, uh, uh, you know, unfortunately, when I answer these questions live, I, I don't have the scripture in front of me. Uh, you know, as you guys know, that when I present my research, I will, I, 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 as a writer, I'm more of a reactionary writer. I like to put a quote up there, a, a passage of scripture, a quote somebody said, and then respond to it. And so in the past, I have shown that, the the land itself is what's defiled. All right. So uh, I have moved away from the position. I, I when I came to the Camp Torah, uh, and that was one of the things that actually led me here was understanding this idea that 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 Yashrael Israel was divorced. I had never been taught that in the church, and when I started realizing that and that I am Israel, that I am uh, that I am grafted in into Israel through Eph um, Ephraim. Uh, we saw that Ephraim and Manasseh tonight with the, the blessing of Yaakov where he formed the, uh, the Tav as he blessed them and that the nations would stream in through them. And so you see the sign of the Tav when Yahushua is crucified. It's just amazing, the whole story. I, had, uh, I was under the impression, or I assumed at first, that, uh, that the actual people were divorced. And what that meant was is that then when they were thrown out of the land, that they were now outside of the plan of salvation. Until until the husband uh, died and resurrected and can marry them again, um, I I pulled away from that. So I can understand that like uh, if if I am divorced, let's just give an example of me. If I am divorced from the Most High uh, or from Yahusha, all right, he's like Noel, you're 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 so blasphemous you're sending it you're so apostate you have walked away from the faith i am i'm done with you just like that done right you're divorced gone it says that in hebrews right that that when we come back in if we you know we make his sacrifice be cautious or be weary of making his sacrifice to to you know no avail that if you get if you are separated again there's no he's not coming back to die for you again right so would my children and my children's children and my children's 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 children receive the same fate as me because of my problems. I don't see that at all in scripture. I see a, a, even when Israel was cast out or the people that were cast out, there might have been uh, some that were cast out that uh, it was a result of the nation, but they were still set apart. 
uh, that their children could then turn back to them, even though they were out of the land. All right. So my conclusion at present, this is where I, I just so there's no confusion, where I veer off from the, the, the common perception or the common understanding is that the land itself they were divorced from. And um, there was, yeah, in, in the book of Revelation, it, it never uses the word divorce. It never says that he gave them a separate divorce. So this is where you have the legroom to argue against it. But the language, when it's calling, you know, when it's insinuating very strongly that the whore of Babylon is Yehuda, that she has, you know, it says in, um, uh, in in Yirmiyahu and Jeremiah that Yehuda was worse than Israel. They they should have learned their lesson and they they really ramped it up and started playing the part of the whore. Um, so when at the end of Revelation, when you see them being cast out of the land, you see Jerusalem destroyed and it's a land of demons and and devils. It's a place like it, it's it's an unclean land. And that's what he talks about that it, it you defile the land, and that's why I'm saying that in my opinion I, I am. I could very well be wrong. You guys can all come to your own conclusions on this. I believe Israel's done. The land of Israel, not the people of Israel, right? Hopefully all of us have been are being grafted into Israel, to the people, you know, to the to the, the children of Yaakov. But the land itself, I think, is done. And this is where um, my research into the hidden wilderness and other places is so crucial here that he has more land reserved for the eternal inheritance. And that's something the Hebrews talks about too, that even Abraham, when he was going out to Canaan, that he was actually really looking for his eternal inheritance, um, a, a place that was somewhere else. So hopefully that answers that question, Sarah. I don't know if I tackled that, uh, all that you were saying, but um, if there's any more confusion, let me know. No, that was, that was great. Thank you. Right, and you, Made a comment that you believed that Pilate would be called just or righteous or is that oh, Yeah, last week, yeah. So are you saying then that he kept Torah? Yeah, so I'd have to, that's actually a really great point. I'd have to look back at where I said that and what the context was. Um, the... Oh man! I think the I think the it was referring to um, you believed that Pilate to be called a just man, and I think you'd found that in scripture somewhere that he was called yeah. A just. Yeah, yeah. I was responding to a quote that actually said that, and so the I would have to look again at how the quote is written out, and I, I was using this as evidence that he he became set apart. So I guess you could argue whether or not he was just at that moment i don't believe he was in that sense um but he was again i'd, I'd have to look back and I, my opinion is hopefully swayed by you know these things i read and present to you guys uh but i am convinced that he became set apart that he became righteous that he uh was a very early convert and there's enough literature out there to promote that and show that to be the case so essentially, yes. And, and, you know, again, in the Bezora of Nicodemus, when he, um, it, it's, I'll be talking about this later too. You know, he plays like the part of a, of a detective, like a, like a sleuth and a detective pilot goes around and he, 
like any good governor uh, of Judea, he would have read their laws. He would have needed to know their laws. If you're a lawyer, if you guys remember the um, the movie My Cousin Vinny, uh, and uh, it was played by uh, Joe uh, Pesci, and he comes down to uh, was it Mississippi or Alabama? I can't remember what state it was. And his uh, his cousin, uh, who was the Karate Kid, he's you know he's accused of murdering someone there. And he goes so his his cousin Finney goes before the judge, and the judge like slaps down this huge thick book, and he's like, "These are our laws here. You better know these when you come into my court." And so any good governor, he's going to go down there, and he's going he's going to go, "What are the laws of this land? How do I govern these people?" Now I have the laws of Rome, but I need to know their laws. So he would have, I think, he would have studied the Torah. I think he would have known the Torah very well. And when you look at Bezora Kifa, uh, not Bezora Kifa, Bezora Nicodemus, he is going to the temple controllers. He's going to the Yahudim, and he's playing them at their own game. And he's pointing out like all the Torah to them, and you know, showing you know their 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 fallacy, and. Um, Sarah, did you have any more questions on last week? Because there's something I did want to add from last week before we move on to this week's questions. Um, there was, yeah, there was one comment when you were quoting Second Esdras six, six through ten. You said, "For Esau is the end of the world, and Yaakov is the beginning of it that follows." There was just a a question with. Could that be alluding to the literal end of the world that's ending in fire and the new world to come, as in the new heaven and the new earth? Yeah, it could. One of the uh, you know problems when we talk about the end of the world and we're trying to grasp their understanding of the end of the world, you know, uh, from a Hebrew perspective, is yeah, you know, what does that mean, right? And um, I think it it could mean a number of things. It could mean a it could be the what you just described. B it could be referring to the actual coming of his kingdom, which was uh, clearly uh, Mashiach ushered that in with his ministry. You know the you know we talk about the, the the physical millennial kingdom, which I believe happened on this earth, but there is there's also his spiritual kingdom. It's not just physical, right? That that's one of the th things people throw at me, you know, like, where did it go? What's well, still here? It's within you, right? So the, the end, it could be the end of one age, the beginning of this new age of the kingdom, which is eternal, everlasting. It's not ever coming to an end. He ushered that in. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I think I said that last week, too, that I'm I'm open to interpretation on that. Uh, the, the point, for those of you maybe tuning in now that don't remember that, was that I was I was making a comparison or comparing – um, uh, Esau through the years and how Esau was always trying to Esau lost his inheritance. He gave it up for a bowl of soup and some bread because uh, he didn't believe in the uh, the kingdom to come. He didn't believe uh, as Abraham did that he was looking for an eternal inheritance. He cast the land aside and you see the Esau for the rest of his days. He's, uh, he's fighting for this for Yaakov and um, and then you see that with the the Herods as well, that they are Esau, and they're coming in and trying to take this fleshly kingdom. They still don't – the thing that – the theme with Esau, you constantly see that they're looking for a kingdom of dirt. They don't they don't understand that the spiritual significance of the kingdom that they're trying to fight. They want this plot of land. Uh, 
And Yahusha came to show that it's much more than that. Now, one of the things that came up last week, this is really fascinating. This happens to me all the time where there's something I can't explain or I, I kind of question, stumble upon one week, and then it just comes to be the next week accidentally. And I'm going with my family through Yasher, and we are in chapter like 58, 59 right now. Uh, and so the question came up last week over what to do with a person when you need to bury them. You know, the, the idea is when the sun sets, you need to bury them quickly. And the question came up like, well, what if you can't bury them right away? Are you breaking Torah? And you know, the, the question was put forward is what if you're at sea? So this is a really interesting scene because in Jasher 56, verse 29, you see that, um, well, right before that, Yaakov is dying and he tells his sons that he doesn't want to be buried there in Egypt. He wants to be buried back in the cave where Abraham and Yitzhak, his fathers, were buried. And so you see in, in verse 29, it says, And it came to pass after this that Yosef's, Yosef commanded his servants, the doctors, uh, this would be the Egyptians, to embalm his father with myrrh and frankincense and all manner of incense and perfume and the doctors embalmed Yaakov as Yosef had commanded them. Well, then you skip down to verse 31, and it says, And after the days of his weeping had passed away at the end of 70 days. So after they embalm him, he's not buried yet, guys. He's embalmed. Uh, he's preserved somewhere. They mourn from the entire kingdom mourns for him for 70 days, over two months. And then they begin a journey to back to Canaan. Uh, they they were instructed that they had to. Uh, they carried him just as they were to carry the Ark of the Covenant. Actually, no. Well, in like manner. Actually, in the same way that the camp of Israel was to go through the wilderness, kind of form the cross. Uh, you know, the front, the side, the back, and they. Only the sons of Yaakov were allowed to carry him on foot. They, they couldn't take camel horse. They had to carry it on foot. So how long did this journey take, right? So they had to go from Egypt, from um, all the way to, to the cave in Hebron. And then what do we read in verse 36 here? And, and the coffin was of pure gold. And it was inlaid round about with, uh, well, that goes on and on. It talks about... Um, it was, uh, they put a crown on him and a scepter on him, on Yaakov in there. So it was really heavy. It was filled with gold. It would have been a heavy uh, casket to carry. And then jumping to verse 50, and they came unto the cave. Um, as, they, as they came, Esau stood with his sons against Yosef and his brethren as a hindrance in the cave. Now, I'm going to have to be quoting from this later on in the study because because I'm trying to make the point, obviously, that Esau killed Mashiach and that they had no intent of burying him. And it had to be Yosef of Arimathea to go bury him. Well, Esau showed up. He finds that that Yaakov, his twin brother, has been dead now for three months at least. And he shows up at the cave. He stands in front of him and says, you are not burying him in here. This is my cave. And there was a big argument you know, being put forward of, wait a second, uh, Yaakov, you, you sold this land and he bought this from you. It's his now. You forsake this. You forsook this. So there's this big argument that ensues. And of course, this is part of the wickedness of Esau. This this goes against Torah, right? That he actually doesn't want to bury the dead. Uh, he's supposed to be burying the dead. Well, then I found this one interesting thing here, verse 68 of the same chapter. It says, 
uh, and Yosef and his brethren made a mourning of seven days for their father. This is after, you know, they cut off Esau's head. It goes rolling and a bunch of Esau's sons die in this battle and they are able to bury Yaakov in the cave. They then mourn seven more days. All right. So first of all, the point of this is to, is to say that the, the Torah commands us to bury the dead by, by, by sundown. And this is where we're, we're looking at the, the checking off the box versus the heart of the issue here, right? The, 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 the circumcised heart issue of this command is, um, are you taking care of the dead? Are you trying to bury them, right? Are you, you know, that, you know you're not just like throwing the body out in the, the, the back to rot in the sun, right? Like you are putting it into a cool place, you're embalming it, you're preserving it, you're getting ready for the funeral, that kind of stuff. Um, and I just, I kind of wanted to point this story out because I think we we get so caught up on these extra little check marks. It's it, the way the Torah is written as a transformative document is, are you internalizing this and trying to work the situation out in your in your life? So um, hopefully that makes sense to everyone. I was totally intrigued, though, by the idea. Uh, I want to point out, not to go too off topic here, is that when Yaakov, when they finally get him into the cave, they then mourn seven days, even though they'd already mourned 70 days. So what's going on here? Well, if you compare that with Second Esdras, it says that you are to mourn for the dead for seven days after their death. I'm wondering now if it's their death or their burial, if there's a connection there, because it says that, you know, for seven days, their guardian angel, whatever, they take him around on a tour of the cosmos, they show him the kingdom to come or what have you, um, which sounds totally awesome. You know, the thought that all of us could go up to the firmament and look at it and look down at the earth and the stars and get, you know, give, show them the, the entire cosmos. Uh, and, um, and so, but once, but the end of the seven days, you're not to mourn them anymore because they are then put down into Sheol and put to sleep. Like a, a guardian angel comes, they put them in their crypt, they're down there, they're asleep, the lights are out, and we're not to mourn them anymore. There's a connection with the seven days. So I'm like, well, wait a second here. If there's a connection to that seven days, where was Yaakov, where was his nefesh, his soul, or his ruach in those 70 days and the journey out to the cave? Um, and then I thought about uh, Abel when he was killed, and there's several texts I'd have to look at. This would be a whole study in itself. You guys act surprised if I ever bring this up again into a topical study. Uh, you see that that Cain is trying to bury Abel into the ground, and the earth keeps vomiting him up. And the earth's like, I'm not burying this dude. And in the legend of the Jews, they even talk about this and how uh, there was no place for his nefesh to go. There was no Sheol at this point. Like this was, he had created, Yahuwah had created the firmament, but he hadn't even, uh, he didn't even have like the holding cell for the nefesh yet. And it wasn't until a later time when um, that Abel was finally buried in the ground. I think they had to wait for Adam to die first, which was almost a thousand years that his body remained outside of the earth. So I'm just wondering if there is a connection to the necessity of burying someone quickly in the ground, putting them into the ground, and the, the process of their soul being taken to Sheol. So something just to think about right there. Um, next question, Sarah. All right. Now we're moving on to comments and questions from tonight. First comment is a bit of a long comment, but it's, it's good. It's from Jonathan Henderson, 52. 
He says, it's interesting to think about how on one hand, Yah used the Sanhedrin and the Jews to sacrifice Messiah for his plan of salvation. But it's also because he knew the wickedness in them was the reason the plan would go the way it did. Remember, remembers seeing on TBN an Easter program where they were trying to form this narrative of no one killed Jesus. And it was all of us and our sin that killed him. But they also made sure to emphasize it was the Romans who did the deed. And the Jews were just playing along, playing their role in a predestination sense to fulfill the prophecy. Like they were trying to clear them from any blame. He says, in his opinion, his own people crucified him. And it was guaranteed to happen because they were overcome by evil within them. Yeah, uh, yeah, I, 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 I agree with those sentiments and that statement. And this is something I've been thinking a lot about too, because you know, it, it's, you know, that's something we all have to evaluate in here. And I, as I pointed out earlier, how you see yourself in this scenario does matter. You know, are you the kind of person right now that would turn him in for 30 pieces of silver? Are you the type of person that would run at the moment he was, uh, you know, uh, are you the type of person that would um, fall asleep in the garden when he's like, just pray, just stay up and pray, and you're just falling asleep, spiritually falling asleep? Um, are you the kind of person that would uh, be like the women, the three women, the three Marys, Mary Salome, Mary his mother, and Miriam uh, of Migdal? who were at the foot of the cross and weeping for him and, you know, just bravely there and, you know, touching, probably touching his feet and all that kind of stuff. Uh, or would you be like uh, Philip who apparently watched from afar and, and so on and so forth. Um, and, you know, how you see yourself in this does matter. But if, if we're going to say that we all crucified Mashiach, um, that's, that's a completely different statement. And that's something that really, that evangelical Christianity really tries to drive at us. And I just don't see there in the uh, gospel accounts. And I guess I, I agree that, you know, it, the, the plan went off because of the wickedness of the, um, of the, the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin. Uh, later on, I'm going to be it's something I, I actually published this week, so we're still probably a few weeks off from getting there in the study. We'll be talking about the Pharisees and how, even though the Sanhedrin were, they weren't innocent in this, the Pharisees were really driving the show. And how modern Judaism comes out of the Pharisees and how the Pharisees were so opposed, the Sadducees and the Pharisees were opposed to each other because the Pharisees wanted to completely remove um, the, they wanted to remove the Torah as a, uh, as a authority, as a written document. Not only that, they wanted to remove the Sanhedrin. They wanted them out of power. They wanted the Levites to no longer be in control and as well. And I, I am of the opinion, um, and I will show the evidence as to why I've come to this conclusion that they are actually responsible for burning the temple, uh, the Pharisees. Uh, keep in mind, Josephus was a Pharisee. He was one of the ten generals of Revelation, uh, he uh, or the ten kings that was giving power for an hour. But he was working with the the, uh, the Flavians, uh, and obviously in on it. And they were the ones that came and burnt the temple. And I'm going to be showing evidence to show that these these Pharisees were so wicked and so evil. Uh, it wasn't just the 
it wasn't just the, I should say, so sadistic. It wasn't just the son of Elohim they killed. They, they were willing to sacrifice Jerusalem. In their own words, to the emperor in Rome, they were willing, they said, they said uh, take Jerusalem, give us our scribes. Those were their words. And that's in the Talmud, basically saying that we want the authority given to us as Pharisees to rule this religion. You can have Jerusalem. We don't, we don't need it. We don't need the temple. We don't need any of that stuff. So, uh, and I'll be going over that in a few weeks. That's how I think wicked these people were. Um, so, yeah, good, right. good, uh, good comment. Okay. Got a question here from John Q. If the soul drives the appearance of the body, do you think there is some sort of connection to physical DNA and genes? to souls since we look like our ancestors and relatives it seems there must have been some familial relationship to our souls pre-existence with our family with our earthly family thoughts that's a really good question uh, something that chuck missler uh, I, I hear every so often people fondly bring the guy up and they always throw out there like i know i know but it's like why like chuck missler in the 90s was an awesome theologian he didn't get everything right i don't get everything right nobody gets everything right we keep learning and knowledge and 20 30 years from now we'll be talking about things that you know now you know the seem like the things we're talking about now will seem elementary then and uh, I remember Chuck Missler saying in the '90s that uh, that he um, the the movie Jurassic Park was basically like a retelling of the resurrection to come because he said that the the resurrection is, is going to be as simple as Yah taking our DNA, our genetic code, or, or the you know basically like according to the Pythagoreans, all reality is. Uh, basically summed up with numbers. It all comes up, you know, comes to like sacred numbers and so on and so forth. And so he's, he's going to take our code, our genetic code, and just, and uh, resurrect us through that. So, which explains a lot because people will say, well, what about the people that were burned in ashes and, you know, dumped into sea and they were eaten by fish and pooped out and they became trees and bushes. And it's like the circle of life, right? The, the, from the Lion King, the, the very grass that grows up that we eat is dead people. Right. It, it's it, it. Bodies are not always as preserved as we would like to think in these crypts and so on and so forth. And so it's just a matter of taking the genetic code and, and resurrecting us. So, yes, I do think that there is uh, a connection to now. I don't know if Aristotle was correct. I don't know. I, I pointed out that he was the one that really pushed this idea that the, the nefesh, the soul is uh, actually a representative of what we look like. It's not it would be wrong to say, I think from Aristotle that my soul looks like my body. It's actually the opposite. My body looks like my soul. I look the way I do because I come from my soul. And um, I would imagine that people who are really big on like reincarnation and stuff would go ape crazy with that, looking at all the different pictures throughout history. You know, like I think, uh, was it uh, Putin? Vladimir Putin looks just like Julius Caesar and, you know, things like that. And say, see, see, they're just the same person. I don't know about all that. But, um, yeah, I, I think that there might be a – I like the way John Q phrased that, that there might be a semblance between on earth as it is in heaven, meaning that the families we have here on earth uh, may have resembled or been our families in heaven, I, you know, in, in our preexistence. I, I think that that's, that's something to really ponder and think about, and I don't – all I have to say about that is it's um, – 
yeah, I don't have, <laughs> I don't have the answer for that, but it's it's worth thinking about. So thank you, John Q. That was a good question. Yeah, I, I hear other people asking that same question or that they have that same belief that we all have soul families and that we've always been together. We are here with the ones that we were a family with in the heaven before we came. Now, I see here that there is some here that, uh, like Stephanie says, I've met too many disabled people, and I, and I mean so disabled you cannot tell they are human. Um, so, you know, the, the unfortunate thing is that, uh, you know, some people have missing limbs. Some people, you know, there, there's all sort of genetic problems that happen, uh, mutations, and, you know, things like that, that, that does mess it up. So, um, you know, then again, we have other things too, as you guys know, like, you know, uh, the prick and other things that uh, creates um, problems with newborns and, and stuff like that. So uh, this isn't, this isn't a, if it is correct that my, my body that I look like I do because of my soul that let's all not forget that there is what we call the glorified resurrection, right? That, that my, my spiritual body is not going to look like my fleshly body. It, it will resemble it. Like hopefully you guys would go, like if you guys could see me resurrected, you might not, you know, know who I am at first, but I'll be like, uh, I'm Noel, you knew me in life. And you'll be like, oh yeah, I see, I, I see the, you know, the resemblance there. I think we're talking about something like that and not, um uh the you know the the problems that might develop genetically or because of other uh, causes so okay next question josh says perhaps yosef of vermont was more of a follower than what has been indicated as it seemed, he had no doubt about who Yahusha was and must have assumed he would be resurrected, protecting his body, as well as he didn't doubt that Yahusha would die, which others doubted. So uh, it sounds like Josh is saying that that Yosef of Rama or Arimathea, Joseph of Arimathea, knew much more about Messiah than he let on. And that is obviously something that I can speculate upon. I can't answer assuredly, though I there is a lot of um, thought out there that uh, Yahusha and Yosef, his of course was his would have been his great uncle. Um, it would have actually been his mother Mary's uncle, so it would have been his great uncle. Uh, the, the idea is that Yosef of Arimathea was a ten trader. And that he had uh, sizable property in Great Britain, and my thought is is that he his tin trade went, of course, through Egypt, uh, all the way over to North and South America. I think they were trading there. I think he had a lot of influence. He was a wealthy dude. There's no doubt he was a wealthy dude, right? Now, if you read the book of the Nazarene, it talks about how uh, when Yosef died. When Yahushua was a teenager, Yosef, his father, when he died as a teenager, he was about 12 or 13 or the whereabouts. Uh, he was a young man that he left for a great time. It said he left for a great time and then came back as an adult when he started his ministry. He did not come back to he started his ministry. Where he went off to, uh, it doesn't say. But I think he went off with, with Yosef so, uh, of, of Ramah. And 
and I can't prove that. But I'm I'm giving this because I think that there's there's very likely that there is a lot that he did know about him. But on even without all that speculation, you know, it, even how much because the thing is is that if what's interesting about the book of the Nazarene, which I really like, is that it actually really plays into the pre-existence uh, narrative. I showed you some of the docetic texts of how, like, you know, Yahusha, like, as a baby, whatever, he just, like, starts talking and prophesying. I don't know about all that. And that's a whole discussion to have on its own. The, one of the, the themes of pre-existence is that people, as they live out their life, they might start recalling a little bit more about their purpose, their mission here, right? Like before you come to this earth, you know your whole mission, you know everything that you're going to be given in order to accomplish your mission. You arrive here as a baby, you don't remember anything, you're being lied to, you're being filled with you know, lies and distractions, and you have to circumnavigate all that and come out on top and fulfill your mission without uh, without misinterpreting all the the material you're giving in order to complete it because we're given everything we need so uh the thing is with yahusha according to the book of the nazarim is that after his baptism and and you start seeing him like he's starting to really realize who he is and that he is the son of elohim and he, at first even yokanan isn't he's not even sure he kind of doubts it like maybe you are maybe you're not i think you are but then by the end of Yahushua's ministry, he's on fire. And he's like, yeah, I'm the son of Elohim. I'm the son of the Most High. And he just has all these recollections and he's just doing stuff. And so, again, Yosef, he might have been a part of that process. And I, I say all that because when he was a youth, you know, obviously, according to this, Yahushua would not have remembered everything. And Yosef might have just thought, wow, this is a strapping young lad here. This is a, He's a really brilliant guy, a great scholar, German and a scholar. But, you know, he's not the son of the Most High, right? Uh, and... But again, at, at, at the very base minimal, what Yosef of Rama was very clearly doing was he was burying the dead. He knew about the agenda. He knew that they were going to mutilate him, do something terrible to his body. So he pulled the strings with Pilate and said, look, can we get some Roman authority here to put him on a sealed tomb so that they can't do anything? They can't get past your guards. And he was, you know, in that way, fulfilling Torah. So uh, great questions tonight, guys. Okay, one more question from Josh. He says, so with Christians' obsession with Jerusalem and the Jewish people, do you believe this cognitive dissonance in making um, it the Romans who crucified the Messiah as another part of the lie, the greater deception, or perhaps is it some greater deception involving the current Jewish people in Jerusalem are Edomites? Okay, there was, uh, can you repeat that one more time? Because I was getting a lot of things in there. Um, if you can repeat that one more time. So with the Christians' obsession with Jerusalem and the Jewish people, do you believe this cognitive dissonance in making it the Romans who crucified the Messiah as another part of the lie, greater deception, and or perhaps is it some greater deception involving the Jewish people in Jerusalem who are the Edomites? So the 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 modern uh, Jews in Israel, you guys know my view on that, that I they are the the Ashkenazi 
are not who they say they are. Now, to their benefit, I'm just going to throw this out here. Dr. Stephen Pigeon brings up some fair points. Uh, for those of you who know Pigeon, he is the, the person who does the Sefer Bible. And he has done such great work into, into genealogies and showing how the tribes of Israel, of Yashorel, went all over the earth. I mean, the, he shows how like the tribe of Dan went all the way down around the south of Africa, back up to, uh, to Madagascar and Ethiopia and all, all over. I mean, uh, that they just, or Cameroon, that they were just all in there. They went all through Europe and he, all these tribes, Reuben, all of them. And so from his point of view, and this is worth thinking about, from his point of view, he, he's like, there's more likelihood that the Ashkenazi uh, are descended from Israel than not. It's a fair point because that's something that I bring up a lot. Now, whether, but that's still, you still have to recognize it's like, wait a second, wait a second. Uh, how how are they still making, they're, they're claiming that they're Jews, Yahudim, right? Where are they finding that? There is no record of it whatsoever. So there is still a deception there. Um, I, I have shown that Esau, um, or what we call Edom, the Edomites, uh, did take over uh, Yashorel during, uh, or what Judea during Yahushua's uh, own ministry. And in fact, I have kind of changed my opinion to say that if I had to to either or, if someone were putting a gun to my head and saying I need to come to a decision, I would say that the prophecies were fulfilled. All prophecies were fulfilled with Yahushua. That the prophecies of Edom coming in. And taking over the land, which would then lead to this destruction, Yahuwah's wrath, that happened with Yahusha and the 40 years leading up to it. All right. So whatever is happening today, if it is, I have no problem with it if it being a repeat prophecy. Like it, it might be Edom all over again, coming in, infiltrating, fake exodus. We know it's a fake exodus, right? Um, but but if I had to choose one or the other, I would say all prophecy was fulfilled uh, by that time. That's just my opinion. You guys come to whatever you want. Um, hopefully that made sense. Yeah, I do think that the other part of this is that uh, much of the evangelical church, I can't speak for all denominations. I don't know how the Russian Orthodox, the Greek Orthodox, the uh, the all these different churches feel about Zionism. But it is very clear for all of you who have come out of the evangelical church that Zionism uh, is upheld. It is proclaimed as Yah's doing, uh, that this is the mass, you know, immigration back into land is prophesied by the Bible, you know, the nation that it was formed in one day in 1948 and so on and so forth. And, um, you know, that's obviously, yeah, there's a lot of, that's a huge part of the deception, guys. So now the, the hard part here is what I'm talking about with the Gospel of Peter is if I had read the Gospel of Peter two, three years ago, I would have looked at this. I would never have presented this. I'd like, there's no way this is legit. Um, this sounds like, you know, came from a different, very different school of thought. But now, you know, after I've discovered the Hebrew Gospels and I see that they literally 
everywhere where the Hebrew gospels say that the he was crucified, it's always the Pharisees. The Pharisees doing it, and then you read the Greek, and they cross it over, and they say, well, it was it was uh, Pilate's soldiers doing it. It's just they swap it. Sometimes they'll say soldiers, what could be Herod's soldiers, but there's there's a you know a sleight of hand going there. And so now I look at this and go, no, I think this is actually legit. Um, and then I'm showing you guys all these other documents that are very old documents that are saying the same message. So what I put forward, I don't know if you guys missed it um, tonight, is that if you were trying to, um, it, it would be a tough sell. If I'm forging this book, the Gospel of Peter, and I'm I'm making this up, like saying the second century, and I'm trying to sell you on its legitimacy, you would look at it and go, well, this doesn't match anything I'm reading over here in the other Gospels. Like it, this is that the Pilate's boys killed him. You're saying the Yahudim did it. I, I I reject this. And you're seeing a lot of documents spring up where they're saying they're agreeing with Kifa. And this is where I'm telling you guys that I think that that is further testimony to the fact that there was a legitimate early gospel that that agreed with what we're seeing in uh, Cave of Treasures, what we're seeing in uh, Kifa, what we're reading in these. Um, other accounts like Nicodemus and uh, even Paul's letters where he says the same thing. So um, hopefully that um, addressed that question. Okay, great. Um, John Q made an interesting comment. And this is in regards to when you were speaking about the burial of Yaakov. He said, interesting, the names of the man who buried Yaakov and the man who buried Yahusha both Yosefs. Yeah. Yeah, that is interesting. That sounds like <laughs> good observation, John Q. That sounds like something Michael would come up with too in his commentary. Um I yeah, I, I didn't make that connection, but that's good. Okay, and I think there's one other question that just came up. Rebecca is asking, wait, weren't there soldiers of a type in the temple? Not Roman soldiers, but someone in authority to enforce temple law or rules? Yes, there were. So this is um, something that I, I probably should talk more about in here. I think I just insinuated a few minutes ago that Herod had his own soldiers. So there were, there were definitely two types of soldiers here, right? We have the, the temple soldiers. And in fact... If you just watch uh, the Passion of the Christ, uh, Bill Gibson's film, when Yeshua, what he, they call him Yeshua there, when Yeshua is in the garden, uh, the Romans don't come to arrest him, right? It's the 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 temple guards; they're the ones that come in to arrest him. So yeah, you have two types of soldiers present: you have the Romans and the the temple uh, soldiers, as well as Herod's boys. And so when you're reading the the difference between the Greek and the uh, the Hebrew, most of the time, uh, like in the Greek, it would just say like soldiers or something like that. And we assume it's Romans, uh, but that's because, you know, of the sleight of hand going on. Just very simple little, uh, you know, perspective changes. And I remember it was probably about two or three years ago, I was approached by an individual who's like, he's he's trying to get me to read the, the, the Gospels in the Greek. This is before we knew there were Hebrew Gospels. And... You know, we had all speculated that they were out there and they hadn't been translated yet. And he's like, I think I think if you really read this, Pilate really is innocent. And it's transferring over to Herod's boys. And I'm reading this going, I kind of see what you're saying, but I, I, I need more than just 
I need more than just this. And so this was the confirmation for me when, when we did the studies on these and we were reading in there, uh, the, the Pharisees uh, and the soldiers were being identified with Herod's soldiers. So yeah, to answer that, there are two types going on in there. All right, and then let's see, we have one other question from Shables. Do the Dan Danites play some sort of role in this Pharisee versus Romans killing Yahusha concept? Uh, the tribe of Dan? Yes, I believe that's what she's asking. Uh, that, that That's a question I can't answer. I'd have to, um, that's something you guys can discuss afterwards. I haven't put the legwork into that to, to form an opinion. And I, I think that she's probably talking about the tribe of, if I'm understanding right, the Understanding her right, the tribe of Dan being perhaps the Antichrist uh, uh, bloodline, the 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 tribe that produced like the the blue bloods, you know the the kings and queens on the earth. I think a lot of them are are said to come from Dan, uh, but that has been something that I have never actually myself looked into in research. I've kind of just seen comments off on the side and that kind of stuff. So that's as far as I go on that. Was that the uh, the last question? Yes, it was. We are thank, all three. Thank you, Sarah, for uh, answering them for me. I hope uh, I, somebody said like I, I need to get a like a pop filter on here. Uh, Rebecca, I am not going with your um, uh, <laughs> proposal as to how I make my pop filter. That's an inside joke that only she will get and a few others. But uh, hopefully, when I kind of animated like this, I'm, I'm try. I'm sorry, guys, if I'm. Uh, making a lot of noise and it, it it could be like the slightest little thing I do and it just is like boom in the microphone for you guys so I do apologize for that and it's something that we'll uh, fix as we go uh, go along and as Sarah just said great questions tonight thank you everybody for asking them and I hope that was I hope it was just uh, informative for you tonight and as always as I always point out if you guys come to different conclusions than me that's totally fine my hope as a researcher is that I can present you with things that at the end of it, you go, I don't agree with everything Noel says, but I learned something, right? It's one of the greatest compliments that um, I, I probably the number one thing I see as I look around on, online and people writing on social media, when they talk about me, they'll say, uh, I don't agree with everything Noel says, which is always interesting. They almost always start with that, you know, just saying like, look, guys, he's controversial. Okay. He's going to say some things. It's okay if you don't agree with them, but, they, but they'll be like, you know, we really love his research, right? So hopefully tonight uh, you guys were able to, um, um, you know, just hopefully I was able to take you guys on a journey and show you things that maybe you've never seen before. And we'll be doing this again uh, week after week after week. Quick reminder. The uh, the TUC Book Club, it's one of the ways you can uh, uh, support this ministry, and we put out new material every single month, and uh, thank you, Rebecca, for doing such a great job on that, um, and also next week, you guys come back, it's going to be a very lively, interesting conversation, because we are bringing on, I'm bringing on Pamela and Michael, and they're going to be discussing an uh, interesting dynamic of the father-son relationship. And you guys have all heard before is, I'll be introducing this next week, but just to give you guys a heads up, a lot of people, when they come out of the Trinitarian argument, 
uh, the, the Trinitarian belief, they've fallen kind of one of two camps. Uh, my camp, where I'm currently at, is that uh, Yahusha Hamashiach is the literal son of the father uh, that uh, I would call the father uh, Yahuwah, or you could say Yahweh, uh, that he's the literal son, that they are not the same entity, the same, you know, like one Elohim, two or three persons or whatever. The other camp that is popular, you guys will see a lot, is they'll say the father is the son, right? That Yahuwah is Yahusha which doesn't make any sense to me. Well, Michael and Pamela will be presenting the position that Yahuwah is Yahusha, but Yahuwah is not the father. The Yahuwah, the, the Elohim of the Old Testament was always the son all along. All right. That's going to spin heads right now for some people who might be hearing that for the first time. Um, but um, I am really looking forward to the presentation. And as, as always, if you are like, no, I disagree, Hopefully you'll still we'll, we'll still learn something, right? There'll be some meaty material. So I'll come back and with that. Oh, okay. So it looks like we have a question right here. Let me just see if I can answer this real quick. Uh, I did ask at the beginning if Noel wanted to. Oh, <laughs> if I plug for the conference. Okay. Um, yeah, okay. I guess I'll plug for the conference in two weeks. Uh, I'll be speaking at Sacred Word Publishing Conference in Atlanta, Georgia. I am um, very uh, grateful that Zen has asked me to uh, speak, and I will be speaking specifically on the mud flood and the millennial kingdom. And I think I'm going to, you know, I again, I, I say this all the time. I never know what I'm going to say that's going to offend people or. Uh, get people triggered or upset. I, I hope that my presentation will not. Um, but um, so it'll be interesting to say the least. Um, you know, come, uh, yeah, look forward to that, watching that presentation. Come if you um, would like, if you're able to get there and they still have tickets available. I'd love to meet everyone. I'm, there'll be a lot of people I'm going to meeting there I'm looking forward to. Some of you I've seen before, some of you I've never seen before. So that'll be in two weeks. And with that, I'm going to close shop for the night. Shabbat Shalom for the final time. And we can begin the after party in the, the general chat. So I will see you guys all there in a couple minutes. Uh, good night, everybody. And Josh, you can end the recording. That's it. That's all, folks.